0: Can you imagine being stopped by the police and they're like, Where are you going? What essential thing are you doing? I'm like, Gonna go look at some cemeteries. It's for projects, that's okay. (laughs)
1: Yeah, it's
2: for projects.
0: We'll give you an escort. of I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast.
2: Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest.
0: This month we're reading Johnny and the Dead, a book that is quite grave, to be honest.
2: (laughs) And our guest is author Oliver Pomervan. Welcome, Oliver.
1: Hello, Liz.
0: Hello, Ben.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Now, this is your first ever Terry Pratchett book, is that right?
1: It is, yes. You know, I mean, I've I've heard of him. Um, I know he's a legend, but um, just never got around to. I'm, I'm probably going to say a lot of stuff that's going to offend a lot of people, and this is this is the first <laughs> bombshell. I'm not a majorly big fan of fantasy. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine. That's so <laughs> um, I'm really glad though that you have invited me on here with my first. Pratchett book, and it, it happens to be a great one. So thank you for um, <laughs> pulling my cherry and getting me on to the Pratchett train. <laughs> and I think I'm actually interested in reading more of his books now. So you've, um, you've converted me now, so yeah.
0: Oh, that's a success. Excellent. That's what we're all about. So, <laughs> uh, But
2: you're no stranger to children's books, of course, because that's what you're best known for, is writing books for younger readers.
1: What, how would you describe your own books? Yeah, so um, my books are kind of like uh, semi-autobiographical, so they're just... Really funny observational stories about basically myself put into a character's persona and, you know, it, whether it's me being a nerd or me being a burger lover, a massive gamer. There's even one, I guess my famous one is Thai Rific, where it's just basically me as a kid, um, and my embarrassment of my parents who had this obsession with cooking Thai food. We're all wonder was just McDonald's and uh, KFC. So it's it's kind of like uh it's kind of like therapy, but it's uh it's heavily disguised with, with lots of jokes and um, some illustrations.
0: Yeah. And what an amazing title.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I I, I love my puns, you know, like um uh, Pratchett. Pratchett is the author for you then, and Liz. <laughs> Absolutely.
2: Liz is not going to disappoint you, I'm sure. This episode, um, and I will slowly uh, die. I will in the corner, <laughs> uh, from, from all the pundit. No, I do love them. Um, and, and a listener did once ask me, do I really hate puns that much? And the answer is no, but it's more fun if I pretend that I do.
0: <laughs> Thank you for pretending not to, or pretending to pretend to not hate them. <laughs> yeah,
2: yes. Well, uh, let's get into it. Um, we'll start off as is our tradition with a reading of the blurb. Sell the cemetery over their dead bodies. Not many people can see the dead. Not many would want to. Twelve-year-old Johnny Maxwell can, and he's got bad news for them. The council want to sell the cemetery as a building site. But the dead have learned a thing or two from Johnny. They're not going to take it lying down. Especially since it's Halloween tomorrow. Besides, they are beginning to find that life is a lot more fun than it was when they were, well, alive. Particularly if they break a few rules.
0: Mm.
2: It's not a bad blurb. I mean, now, I... We often read the blurb from the oldest edition that we have, so I, I don't know. You've both got much newer editions than me. Has it changed much?
0: Exactly the
1: same for me. Actually, mine's actually different, actually. Oh, yeah? Mm. Um, slightly different. Destroy the cemetery over their dead bodies. Johnny Maxwell is just an ordinary boy taking an ordinary shortcut through an ordinary local cemetery where he suddenly realises he could talk to the dead. And the dead have news for Johnny. Their beloved graveyard home is to be demolished and they aren't happy. As Johnny and his rather dubious friends try to put a stop to it, his you, rather ghostly friends, are realizing that to really enjoy death, you have to break a few rules.
0: So it's like similar, but it's got a different kind of hook to it. Like it would draw in a different readership, I think, with that. Because that one leans more into the mystery, whereas the other one leans more into the spooky, Mm, I think.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and it also it's, uh, turns the tables because as happens in the book, like as I remembered it, Johnny tells the dead that the cemetery is going to be destroyed. But actually in the mm. book they tell him. He already knows. But then when he shows them the newspaper, that's how they find out and they come to him to complain. So, mm. yeah, it's it's an interesting little – It's only it's, it feels like a small change. But, yeah, I think you're right. I think it would draw in a different group of people. Mm. The, so that's the newest edition, Oliver. It's got the, the cool new car- yeah. really cartoony – Almost um, Quentin Blake style yeah, illustration. You
1: know, I was going to say, like, it does remind me of, of Quentin Blake, and I was going to actually check to see if it was, but... Um...
2: There's a couple of other illustrators yeah. who, who very much do that style.
0: It's influential.
2: One of whom does all of uh, David Williams' book covers, I think. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's, it's it's very cool. I like those new ones. They've done his other children's trilogy truckers in the same style, which I really like those ones too. But yeah, let's, uh, let's get into the book because it doesn't take long for things to sort of get weird in the <laughs> book, which is nice.
0: Can I just say that I feel like this book was written for me personally, and I'm a little bit offended that I didn't find it earlier in my Terry Pratchett reading because it is Like Even when we read the first Johnny Maxwell book, I'm like, oh, well, this is not really going to be for me because it's all about games and so the other ones will probably be similar. This one is literally about how important graveyards are and how we should preserve them and how it's not weird to like wander around in graveyards and talk about it and how cool it would be to talk to dead people. And I'm like, this is all of my interests in one book and I don't understand (laughs) how I didn't know about it because I guess I just didn't really look at his children's books as much. But yeah, I felt extremely catered to, Yeah, very well catered to.
2: Because you've written about this subject, haven't you, Liz?
0: Yeah, I was like, oh, this is like my essay. He's like retroactively like gotten into my brain and I've written an essay about graveyards and things because it is and it's also a lot of the similar themes, but with puns and more funny. Like my essay was also it was called Grave Concerns. So uh, (laughs) (laughs) which would be a great alternate title for this book, I feel. Yeah, I don't know what I expected from this. Like, from the cover of mine, I didn't read the blurb. I just knew the title. I thought it was going to be more of a haunted house kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But no, it's actually, like, it's not what I expected, and it's very, very well done.
2: Did you have any expectations going into this, Oliver?
0: Uh, yeah, look, I um went into
1: it thinking that he had this ability to talk to the dead since the first book, but I did a bit of snooping around to actually have a look at the other two Johnny Rexville books, and... Am I right to say that they kind of standalone ish Like, Johnny Maxwell seems to almost reset or reboot?
2: You do get little references, and it's clear that he's had several adventures. I mean, one of the things I like about this book uh, is there's a couple of little lines referring to weird adventures that he supposedly had that we never hear the story of. Like, that's the only time it's mentioned that he found, like, the lost city of Montezuma or something behind <laughs> the Tesco's. Like, that's never revisited. But yeah, there's each book does kind of stand-alone, and it's more just this idea that weird stuff happens to him and the first book is is clearly the first time it's happened like he doesn't refer to any weird stuff having happened to him before but by this one and the other one he does kind of say this stuff happens to me surely other kids don't have to go through this nonsense (laughs) which i thought was quite cute uh in this one
0: it could absolutely about be about three different characters i haven't read the third one yet but i'm assuming it kind of taps into this one because it is about the great war isn't it or is it about the Second World War? Because nineteen forty-one. I don't want
2: to. I don't want to spoil it. But but yeah, it, it does. The third one does have a few more links to the previous two in terms of how the characters interact and stuff. But um, and there is a character who appears for the first time in this book who becomes very important in the third one. Oh, cool. um, mm. but she's you know basically a, a footnote in this one more or less. But it's interesting. I, I found that quite interesting. Coming I have back seen to this.
0: through your clever ruse and I've guessed exactly who it is. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Uh, yeah, coming back to this one, I'm a bit. I was a bit like, oh, I didn't. Yeah, okay, she's there. Let's uh, let's get into the plot because let's take a –
0: literally because let's take <laughs> a walk in the cemetery. <laughs> That's
2: right, and it's it's an interesting escalation because in the first book, we're introduced to this idea of the trying times with the capital T's where obviously Johnny's parents are not getting along. They're quite probably heading for divorce, although you're not really sure exactly what the issues are. As when you're a kid, you never really are, I don't think. Oh, well, maybe you are. Certainly, I was way too young when my parents split up, so I didn't ever get any inkling of what was going on, and I didn't really find out until very much later when I was an adult. So I, I always have identified with that part of the story. But things have escalated to Phase 2, or three, and now they're living separately, and so he's living with his mum in his granddad's house.
0: The way they rocketed through a whole lot of exposition without it feeling rushed was done very well because you find out within, like, a matter of pages that he suddenly got this ability to talk to the dead. His friends don't quite believe him. It flashes back a little bit to what's happened with his family. Like, you find out his new living arrangements within, like, one or two sentences, and you also get this really heartbreaking look into his grandmother and her nursing home experience as well on the same page. So you get a real good sense of the family around him and the circumstances this boy is in within like two pages. And that's kind of remarkable writing. Mm.
2: And there's that nice, like that first passage where it kind of ends with saying, uh, yeah, but that was all later and after the raising of the Ford Capri, which is like, wait a minute, the what? (laughs) 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 Uh, And, yes, it's a good hook, gets you in. People often go on about the importance of the first line, particularly in children's literature, and I think it's it's a good one. Johnny never knew for certain why he started seeing the dead. I'm in. I'm on board. (laughs) But, yeah, this whole first chapter, once we get that establishment, is about going in the cemetery and then that moment where, for whatever reason, he decides to knock on the alderman's tomb.
0: So I've got a question for both of you. Do you find cemeteries spooky?
2: No, I I like them. I don't visit them very often. In fact, it's probably been many, many years since I last went to one. But, no, I, I like wandering around them. And I've been to a couple of famous ones to visit the graves of famous people.
1: Yeah, same. I've got to say, I don't have that sense of spookiness around graveyards, mostly because I don't really know anyone personally to, to go visit someone there that I know of. So I'm kind of like Ben. Like I've been the, the tourist going... uh to parts of Europe and um, other parts of the world looking at famous graveyards and, and um, tombstones and things like that. So I've never really got an, an airy kind of sense. But the graveyard described in *John the Dead, I would say I wouldn't be scared as well because it seems quite charming, to be honest. Like, it seems like it's <laughs> yeah. kind of like as, as friendly as a, as a playground sort of set uh, in, mm. in, in a town, I think. Yeah,
2: like a slightly overgrown old playground. Actually, it does remind me now that you say that When I visited Japan, there were a couple of places where I was walking around and there were these disused playgrounds that were super overgrown, which was really weird because nothing else was like that in Japan, but I guess they were like deemed unsafe or something. I don't know what the story behind them was, but the graveyard, yeah, it reminds me a bit of that. It's just this bit of land that's got stuff in it that's just been left alone to become wild and now it's got foxes and possibly rare birds living in it.
0: To be honest, um your abandoned Japanese playground sounds a lot spookier to me than a graveyard.
2: We're <laughs> we talking like very small like the kind of playground you'd find in a small park on a suburban street. Not a not like, like Where a- you'd
0: find like twins holding hands covered in blood, singing <laughs> like play with me. Like <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the usual abandoned playground nonsense.
2: Yeah, I didn't see any of those, but that doesn't mean they weren't there. Yeah,
0: because yeah, you, you didn't know you could see them. You weren't looking hard enough. Most people are too lazy. I That's probably. what they were saying. Yeah. It's like the TARDIS view of um, why people can't see the dead. They're around, but you don't want to notice it.
2: Mm. It's a theme that comes up again and again in Pratchett's writing, but also in a lot of British fantasy, as we talked about in the We Free Men episode, um, which is another one of his books of, uh, about a younger character who starts to be able to see the things that other people won't see. Mm. Also, it reminded me of Beetlejuice when they get the handbook for the recently deceased and it says the living usually won't see the dead. And they're like, won't or can't. And then they have this big <laughs> discussion about it, uh, which I thought was cool. So, it's yeah, it's a, it's a great idea and I love it.
0: Well, I like that we're all on the same kind of page as Johnny is because his friends are like graveyards are Spooky and Wobbler in particular. Oh, is- yeah. Is all like, oh, why would you want to be here? It's creepy. And then they start talking about different cultural uses of graveyards around the world. But the general consensus seems to be that graveyards are spooky and you do not want to spend time here, which is never something I've really understood because, like, the dead aren't anything to fear. Yeah. Unless you've wronged them.
2: <laughs> that's, that's a fair call. And he hasn't really wronged anybody. He's just sort of knocked on the door to say hello he's been quite polite although i kind of like that he does that and the older man comes out and johnny freaks out and runs away and wobbler runs with him even though he can't see anything <laughs> <laughs> he's just like you're like, running away oh, it seemed like a thing to do
0: it's like doorbelling, like because they're young boys doing the thing and they didn't expect someone to be right at the door <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah um and uh but johnny goes back to have a bit more of a chat because he sort of feels like that's the right thing to do and also there's that great bit where he sort of feels like he's at a moment in his life where he's got to make the choice do i just leave and never know what's going to happen or do i stick around and find out and i i love that particularly Uh, it goes into all this detail of him imagining some angel visiting him on his death and (laughs) asking if he wants to go back. That was, yeah, I really love that bit. Yeah. And we meet our first one of the dead, the Alderman.
0: A lot of the characters that we meet, the dead characters, they are analogues for actual historical figures or versions of them. But is the Alderman one of those or is he just an extremely local person and a character exclusive to this book? Because I couldn't think of a parallel for him but I could for most of the others. Like him and Mr. Grimm did not seem to have mm. a counterpart to me, but everyone else pretty much did. Or maybe maybe not the inventor guy.
2: I kind of feel like he's just, you know, your local bureaucrat, like the sort of person who's necessary in a town for, you know, making things go, but who no one really gives two thoughts about. You know, like, he, yeah. like most people don't know who their local councillor is, for example.
1: Yeah, I think he's more of like a, like a spokesperson, I I find him. Like he's someone who echoes the sentiments of the dead. And what I like about him is that he's, he's just very clear and precise with what he wants Johnny to do. And I really like the dialogue between uh, Johnny and the Elderman as well. Like it's just a very, a battle of fact. Like, you know, it's like if you kind of don't think about it, it's almost like Johnny is actually talking just to a normal person. Like you can't forget Mm. the fact that he's a ghost. And I think the best thing about this is, Pratchett does a really great job in giving these ghostly characters such such warmth and such personality that you really don't actually see them as ghosts. You just see them as normal people, the same way that Johnny would.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Although I have to admit, I got so used to thinking of the Alderman as the Alderman that when he refers to himself by his actual name later in the book, I had to go back and look and go, who, who was that?
0: Hoomst. Yeah,
2: Hoomst <laughs> 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 yeah. is Thomas. Bowler? Yes, Bowler. (laughs) Uh, But that was cool. This is where we get some of the stuff that really kind of makes you realize, if you didn't already, that this book was written and set in 1993, because uh, the main touchstone for a 12-year-old when it comes to the dead is Michael Jackson's thriller video, Mm. which I think probably was mine too when I was 12, because I was a bit of a wuss and I didn't watch horror movies. But then I had a lot of friends who, like Wobbler and Big Mac, uh, did watch all the scary horror movies that I was too scared to watch. So it was definitely a thing that people knew about and talked about.
0: Uh, The the thriller thing was interesting to me, but I didn't – like what you just said wasn't where I was expecting you to go because you said 1993, The Touchstone. I thought you were going to talk about the satanic panic that is mentioned throughout this because I looked it up and, you know, the Memphis Three case was in 1993 and the convictions were in 1994. This book came out in 1993. So I'm not sure if he wrote it before it happened or – when it happened, because that's an interesting coincidence. Um, for the short rundown of that is the Memphis Three was a was a famous case where um, three teenage boys were convicted with killing three young boys in an occult fashion, but there's been a lot of work done since that makes it seem as though they didn't actually do the crime they were convicted of. There's a whole bunch of documentaries you can watch, but at the time it really blew up satanic panic. People were worried about kids getting into the occult and doing horrible, awful things. So I was wondering if that influenced this book because Walbur does specifically mention Satanic Panic, but the timing of it, I'm just curious because how fast between writing and publication could he have done that if the case happened then? Is it just Mm. a coincidence or did it get added in later?
2: I mean, it was definitely a thing in the 80s as well, like famously targeting heavy metal music and Dungeons and Dragons, which was generally about, uh, you know, sort of around Certainly through the 80s and 90s, there was an undercurrent of that among religious people like Yolis's mum, for example. But it didn't come out here into Australia very much, so I never really copped it. I think the worst, the worst case I ever got was when I was in primary school and the religious education folks who came in from outside the school showed us a video claiming that all heavy metal stars were Satan worshippers and that's why they all died choking on their own vomit. Um, that we All should of listen. Them? <laughs> yeah, basically, it was it was very over the top and dumb. Uh, I think it was what turned me off religious education <laughs> in school because <laughs> uh, I was like, my mum's got that record. I'm pretty sure it's mine.
0: <laughs> see, my school didn't have that. We just had cricketers come and be like, "Here's some Milo, and um, we'll teach you how to bowl." Mm, well, you know, so I know which one I'd choose.
1: I like the fact that a uh, Marxism gets a bit of a run, which is kind <laughs> yeah. of cute. Yeah, because uh, to see communism's explained so uh plainly uh, is is funny in itself but to see it in a kid's book and for kids to just read and go oh yeah i, I get it like you know it's uh, it's pretty cool and you know it, and and it's the theme of this book this concept of people who've passed away would they be known forever would they always be famous forever or would they be forgotten so i like the fact that Pratchett has done his homework basically he's 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 matched up people with certain people and um, I did a bit of snipping as well. And even the, the town itself, like, you know, um, Blackberry is kind of loosely based on another town that he knows of. Mm-hmm. You know, just this almost famous kind of town, but nothing much really happens there kind of thing. But, um, yeah, so I, I really enjoyed that part. Yeah.
0: The vibe of like being the Beatle who left the Beatles before they got famous was like <laughs> strong through the whole thing. <laughs> like the almost yeah. potential and how those people matter as well. And that doesn't mean their graves should be just dug up or built over, Um, which again, interestingly, they did in Melbourne and probably lots of places, but the Queen Victoria markets here um, are built over a graveyard. They dug up the famous people, the significant people, they buried them somewhere else and everyone else, they just raised their gravestones and built the market over the top of them. And so that was very much at the forefront of my mind when I was thinking about this, because when he was trying to see who was significant and who was not, I'm like, that's not the questions we should be asking ourselves, which he eventually comes to. But yeah.
2: Yeah, and it's a nice journey that he goes on through the book in that way. But, you know, after he speaks to the alderman, he's a bit sort of,
0: oh, I don't know how I feel about
2: this, and he goes home <laughs> and talks to his granddad <laughs> about the cemetery which leads to his second visit where his granddad shows him the grave, um, speaking of Marxism, of mm-hmm. one William Stickers, mm. um, <laughs> Workers of the World Unit, yes. uh, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was a great little gag.
0: Recurring gag too because like they have an, an E left off something later on as well in a footnote.
2: There's a lot of nice little recurring gags in this book. Yeah, it's really great. And then he he convinces his friends to come back with him to the cemetery, which, you know, it's the escalation. And it's also where he realizes he's a bit alone in this, that even when he brings his friends along, like in so many of these little magical stories for kids, like in a lot of, particularly a lot of 80s films, there'll be one kid who's the first to discover whatever the magical thing is. But then when they bring their friends in, they all get to go. And that's not what happens here. Like they come with him on his journey because they know that weird stuff happens to their friend, but they don't ever see the dead. And by the end of it, possibly don't even believe they were ever there. So I thought that was quite interesting contrast with other kids' books as well.
0: I like that um, they support each other as well. Like They had that section about how each of them had a situation where they needed to support the other ones and they sort of had all shown up, even if it went against their better judgment. And that was, I think, a cool friendship theme running through the book.
1: Yeah, I, I like the fact that they're all just hanging out and they kind of accept Johnny's weird talent. And, you know, a part of them wants to believe, a part of them is kind of scared, and a part of them is, is there to cheer for their friend. But I think they just want to come along for the ride just in case something does happen. So, um, you know, having this book um, sort of set, like, you know, written in, in in the 90s, there there was no phones, there was no social media. You couldn't just text Rob and say, hey, come over to the graveyard. Like Wobbly would have to just be there and hope something would happen. So, yeah, it's it's kind of it's kind of nice actually. I like this. Um, it's 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 a, like something that Ben mentioned actually. Like this concept of like a gang that discovers something together. Like you know, with, with ET for example. You know, everyone gets to see mm. ET, and that's something magical that that group, selected Ronnie, has. Like they get to hang out with ET at, at the house. But yeah, it, it is kind of weird that only Johnny possesses this. But at the same time, I kept thinking that. But kind of going back to what you said, like, you know, it, maybe his friends didn't want to see the dead. Maybe they didn't focus hard enough because they definitely felt it. Like, you know, there's a lot of mention of oh, feeling cold. Is that a whoosh in the air kind of thing? So maybe they're kind of halfway there, but they just didn't want to make that extra leap of faith, perhaps. And
0: that same when the four of them are all in the graveyard and a bunch of the dead show up. Johnny, like, as soon as he saw the alderman, he accepted that it was real. But the others, even when they saw the newspaper hanging around in the air and stuff they were just coming up with as many excuses as possible to explain away what it is. And so maybe that is part of their mental barrier as well to seeing Mm. them that they don't like, like Mm -hmm. you're saying, they don't want to see them. And so they will find reasons to not believe that they're there. Whereas Johnny doesn't even for a second, try to explain them away. So that's perhaps a difference.
2: I think this is also the point of the book where we do meet the gang. They're they're the same friends he has in the first book that haven't changed very much. They are introduced with that bit at the start that talks about how there's all the different friendship groups at the school, but then Johnny's just got the gang. And I identify with that heavily. Like, I was in a friendship group at school, which was really the kids who didn't fit into any of the other friendship groups.
0: Um, Same. Like the odds and ends. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So, I really identified with that. But what do we think about Wobbler and Yolis and Big Mac?
0: Should we go through the one by one? Hmm. Yeah, Okay. So, here's the thing I was thinking about Wobbler. Is he redeemable in any way? Like, does he show any good qualities at any point in the book?
2: <laughs> That's an interesting question, knowing what happens in the third one. Oh, sorry, uh, i I haven't oh, okay. read it.
0: But at this, in this book alone.
2: there's Well, there's stuff in this book that makes me think Pratchett was planning the third one when he wrote it. Mm. And I think part of that is Wobbler being a bit of a jerk. Uh, but not – like, he's not a massive jerk, you know. He's just – He's, he's a bit rude, um, and he's a bit self-centered, I think, but he's not, like, overtly
0: awful. Well, he is the one who, like, when they talk about feminism in class, he's the one who has to play devil's advocate and be like, women are useless. He's oh, the one yeah. who keeps well, on pointing true. out Yolis's race, mm. and he's the one who consistently tells Johnny he's, Wrong. And I'm not sure, I can't remember who said it, but is he the one who's like, what are you, a gay ghost? When he shows up in the pink sheet. I think that's him. Yeah. So he's, he like ticks all the bigotry boxes in this Mm. book, but also like a lot of young kids do because it's some learned behavior from their environment. So we don't know what his home is like. But in this book, I didn't see him show any redemptive qualities on his own, but that doesn't mean he's not a redeemable character.
2: Yeah, where that comes from is, I think, maybe a place of – because he's the, the fat one, to, you know, yeah. put that in inverted commas. And so he probably feels the need to pick on other people to make himself feel bigger and better. Mm. He never seems to do it with a lot of malice, but you're right, yeah. that's that doesn't necessarily make it any better.
0: Yeah. There are a lot of reasons for a child to behave that way, and I was just wondering if there are any hints of it in the book, in this book alone. Um, that would explain it or, or suggest that it is going to change for him later.
1: Mm. I mean, I always found him a bit of a cynic, to be honest. Like he's always just um, oh yeah, here we go again, kind of <laughs> kind of a taddy. Um but you know, Liz when, when you mentioned those points or that added up, it does make it sound like he's just yeah, like a little bit um like you like you say, because he just wants to belittle other people at the same time, to to mask his own insecurities, perhaps. Mm. Um, as a bit of a, a comic folly in terms of like someone who, who says the gags, he does his job. But as, as a best friend, I, I wonder how, how dependable he is for Johnny.
0: He brings know? the jokes. It's good to have the character being, like you say, um, just being like, no, this is all ridiculous and this is very silly. I think that does also add value to the plot.
2: Mm. I think it's worth saying that he does come through for Johnny kind of at the end, like when When they go back to the, you know, the sort of the big Mm. climactic thing that happens at the cemetery at the end, he's the one who runs off to get help and he does that reliably. And then Mm. he also does go back into the cemetery with Johnny when the others leave, even though he is clearly scared, he sticks by him. Mm. So I think, I think there's a little bit of stuff there to redeem him, but yeah, look, I think he's meant to feel like your typical gross 12 year old boy, uh, Mm. in a way that Johnny represents like the more thoughtful, kindly kid, and then you've got Yolis and Big Mac presenting a couple of other, I don't, know, I don't want to say stereotypes, although that's certainly part of their portrayal, but certainly other kinds of kids. What about Yolis? Let's talk about Yolis.
0: Oh, I love him so much. He's <laughs> my favourite.
2: Do they explain his name in this book? Because they, they explain it in the previous one.
1: No, actually. They didn't yeah. explain it.
2: Uh, and look, you know, I think this is informative because a few of the things that they say about him in this book I think are a little... We're a little bit like, well, this is how kids talk, but still, it's a, you know, it's a little uncomfortable looking at it through a, a lens from 2020.
0: No 2020 vision.
2: You, yeah. <laughs> 2020 hindsight. Yeah. <laughs> but he it's explained that he's called Yolas because even though he's one of the black kids at school, he never says yo. Oh, right. And everyone's like, that's weird. And uh, because they're expecting him, and you know, this is a small country uk town which probably doesn't have a very multicultural population so uh, and, and i can kind of like it's not a million miles from the town i grew up in although that was oddly multicultural for a small place and, I, and it's worth mentioning i was almost exactly the same age as johnny um, it's weird because this book comes out a year or two after the previous one and he's still the same age so he's now no longer exactly the same age as me
0: Maybe he's dead the whole time and they all are and this is a strange afterlife.
2: What? No. Oh.
0: An afterlife that has its own graveyard. <laughs> but yeah, I uh,
2: like they do like to point out people's difference in a way that now you would hope people wouldn't feel the need to. And yet at the same time, they have a really great friendship.
1: Yeah, I think I'm, I'm willing to accept those kind of point of difference remarks only for the fact that they are actually friends. So it is actually a nice sort of multicultural kind of mix of friends, which is kind of cute. And I think, you know, that that's what kids do, I guess. Like, you know, whether we, we read about it or not, like I, I, I would assume that they would at least talk about it and then get that out of the way and then move on to something else kind of thing. Yeah.
0: Because yeah. Yeah, I was in quite a multicultural group of friends as well, being Eurasian, coming from Hong Kong, and it's like we are all the sort of odds and end groups. Like I realised in hindsight, looking back at school, that basically – Everyone who wasn't white was in my friendship group, um, so um, which I didn't really notice at the time. Um, but yeah, it, you do ask each other questions that, in hindsight, you look back and you're like, "Oh no!" But yeah, because you're friends, or because they're friends, I think it's it's okay.
1: Oh yeah, one of one of the best things about having friends like that is that you can have games of you can't ask that, but you can because you know they're your friends. So
0: yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, because it's done without any malice and with genuine friendship underneath it.
2: And I mean, even Johnny gets a little bit of that because I think one of the things I identify with him is that he's going through this trying times and something that's worth remembering is that that's is actually not common in a small country town. Like I remember growing up in primary school, I was the only kid whose parents, like birth parents were divorced and we never talked about it and nobody ever asked me about it. And it's not, you know, obviously it's very, that's a very different thing to have as a point of difference than, you know, your ethnicity or, or cultural background. But it is, you know, I think he he has that about him. Hmm. But then also, you know, you've got Big Mac who's got some similar kind of issues going on at home. But I don't want to I don't want to get off the topic of Yolas though, because I also love him because he's the he's the proper nerd of the group.
1: Yeah, in a
2: way, <laughs> he's the SWAT. You know, he's the one who does really well at school and who's got a pretty strict religious mum who's also a nurse. But he's also he's pretty switched on.
0: Mm. He's a thinker, and he's the one who comes up with the most rational reasons for why the ghosts can't be real.
2: Yeah. He's the organiser, too. Like, I think he's the one who drives that conversation you were talking about where he says, but we all supported Big Mac when he had to go to court, and we all supported Wobbler when he got in trouble at the library or whatever it was, and he's the one who sort of brings that up and says, we we look out for each other. We, mm. Let's do it. So I like that. But what about Big Mac?
0: He's complicated, um, but good. I was hoping he would get over his gun and ammo thing in this book, but um, I have a feeling that maybe that's something that is foreshadowing something later. Yeah, I, I think it's it's an interesting character study of someone who people would make assumptions about based on where they live and what they look like and who their family is and his own internal struggle to whether he wants to lean into that or rebel against that. And so you see that come through at different points in the book and i since he's in it so like not that much Pratchett does explore a lot of that character and that struggle very effectively in a short amount of time mm.
2: you get that passage early on like just before they go back to the cemetery for the second visit where they go to Big Mac's housing estate and they talk about how it's this creepy place and the history of it being built and the way that people in the town think about it which you know reminded me there's a lot of talk in Melbourne at the moment about the housing estates we have here and the neglect that's been put into the infrastructure there and the way that people are treated or assumptions made about them because they live there. So there's, it's interesting that that's one of the things that came through strongest to me as an issue that is still very contemporary. Mm. But yeah, so it was it was interesting to see that in this book. And then, you know, he comes back mostly at the end, you know, again, is where his big significant contribution is to the plot.
1: Yeah, I found him as a, I guess that misunderstood outcast. But he does get his, his moments, uh, especially with, uh, driving certain things. <laughs> like he just, you know, getting into accidents and I, I like he has some of the funniest lines actually when he's just describing those things. He's like, Oh, you know, like I was going to return it back, you know, I was going to, you know, get the car back there. <laughs> it was all right. Like it was all good. Like, you know, uh, but yeah, I, I like him. He's, he's a very likable larrikin. Like he might sometimes do the wrong thing, but I can accept that because it's, it's a kind of like, uh, childlike mischief that. You know, every friendship group needs a thing. There needs to be someone who who can who can be brave enough to do those things. Which includes mm. sometimes breaking the law, but uh, every group needs someone like that.
2: Yeah. And his heart seems to be in the right place, you know. Mm. He doesn't ever seem to do things because he wants to harm others or you know, he, he is he is a good friend to his friendship group.
0: Mm. Just one quick jump back to the first book, which isn't essential, um but In the first book, there is a rather terrible car accident that Big Mac sees and is traumatized by. I was really surprised that he then um, stole a car and crashed it and that was just sort of like fine and there was no hark back to the traumatic incident from the previous book. But, you know, plot-wise, I thought that was strange. Yeah,
2: I guess they don't ever really put that in a, a time frame. So that could be something he did before that.
0: Maybe. True, yeah, actually. Because okay. it
2: wasn't really a joyride. He sort of like, you know, it was in a car park and he drove it into a wall yeah. next to the car park. So <laughs> didn't go very far.
0: I accept your timeline theory as canon, that it happened before, <laughs> and that it has all sorted out in my mind for me.
2: <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad I could sort that out for you. <laughs> yeah, and I, I like him a lot this book i think you feel very he's a very sympathetic character because Mm. even though in some ways he is yeah he is that sort of one who who pushes the boundaries maybe a bit too far um you know you also look at his situation and think what else does he know you know Mm. he's doing the best he can with what he's got and you kind of see that at the end where he kind of takes a step to hopefully do something better for himself i don't know about you i have my fingers crossed for him that it
0: yeah, and there's positive indications by the end of the book, so like, we keep jumping ahead, but, yeah, it seems like things are Ryan from, from the O.C.ing him at the end. Mm, yeah. Yeah.
2: When they do go back to the cemetery in the evening um, after Johnny's met, uh, William Stickers, uh, with his granddad, they meet a whole bunch of other ghosts, but the first one that he meets is probably one of my favourite characters in the book, Mr. Vicente, um, who there's like all these rumors about that he's like supposedly some sort of mafioso or something, <laughs> but, but no, he's the children's entertainer. Uh, and he, I found him one of the most delightful characters. Yeah. <laughs> he, was, he was great from start to finish.
0: And I thought it was cool. Cause he's kind of like a children's entertainer with some like magic tricks and stuff. And it is strongly implied that he died um, a Houdini kind of death. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um and he his shop is on Armour Street, uh, A-L-M-A, and there's a famous Australian magician called Will Armour, um, which I do not think is a deliberate nod, but I just kind of found that one of those cool life coincidences. But we could that's a whole separate podcast, Um, me and my weird magician nonsense, so we'll save that for another time.
2: <laughs> we'll have to make that podcast now. That's that's at least two spinoff podcasts we've discussed now.
0: <laughs> Elizabeth's weird magician nonsense, the podcast, yeah.
2: Yeah, uh, I'd produce it. <laughs> I don't know about you, I got vibes from Mr. Vicente that there was going to be some weird secret horribleness about him. Well, not horribleness, but something weird and hidden about him. And then he just turned out to be wonderful throughout the whole book, and I was really pleased. Mm. Because there's a little bit of Willy Wonkerness about Mm.
0: him. How dare you? Willy Wonka is terrifying.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I thought that might be the direction that he was going to go, but no, he was just a delight. As are many of the other dead characters, although we don't meet that many by name, uh, which I think is, is a wise move on Pratchett's part. Like he, There's often hundreds of the dead mentioned, as in there's that many of them, but there's only about four or five of them, maybe half a dozen, who have names and significant personalities that we learn, and then the rest of them are either jokes or just background.
0: Can we quickly discuss Mrs Liberty, because I've got a few plot points It jumps ahead to talk about with her. Um, first of all, they introduce her as a woman with a fruit hat and I was like, Carmen Miranda in this book, really. <laughs> but <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> no, she's one of the first suffragettes and they make all those comments about how suffragette when they try to explain what they are. They're like, oh, you know, they used to throw themselves under the Prince of Wales as horse, but she misunderstood and threw herself under the Prince of Wales, who's a rather large man. And I was like, hang on a second, 1914, I looked up the prince of wales then and it was edward the abdicator the one who went on to marry wallace simpson who was known as a massive womanizer especially Mm. around that time and i'm like is he suggesting something rude
2: yeah i thought was this this a sex joke in
0: a kid's book did he did she get boned to death by the prince of wales like
2: (laughs) yeah it was weird (laughs) (laughs) was he not famously played by guy pierce in a film am i thinking of that right
0: I'm not in sure. The, in um, the
2: King's Speech, perhaps?
0: King's Speech was a long time ago. I'm, I'm very much into the Crown now, so. Oh, okay. Well, who <laughs> and knows? Downton Abbey. He's played in both by misc men. But yeah, so I was interested in that. And then jumping forward a bit, because she's Mrs. Liberty, is she an ancestor to that counsellor?
2: Yes, hmm. yes. I think that is specifically mentioned, that okay. Johnny thinks she looks a bit similar, and there's a line about him tracing it later on and finding out that yes she she is some sort of
0: relative interesting okay so plot wise where are we up to
2: well we're up to meeting her really because after he meets mr vincenti they all come out to talk to him and the alderman william stickers and mrs liberty have figured out from the newspaper that william stickers asked johnny to deliver that the cemetery has been sold and it's going to be built on by a horrible company (laughs) called united amalgamated consolidated holdings
0: <laughs> <laughs> which is the same thing <laughs> i thought it was amazing yeah three words it just mean the same thing and you never find out what they do
2: no, i don't think anybody knows and that's that's a very pratchety thing to have a company like that this is the call to action they tell him they want him to do something about the cemetery being demolished they don't want it to happen which is interesting because that's the sort of impetus for a lot of the plot after this but then that's not kind of how things work out, which mm. I thought was kind of cool.
0: Well, it divides into two separate stories. Like, it's not really an A plot and a B plot. It's just two A plots running simultaneously after that point, which start off with the same motivation, but end up with very different things. Well, one of them goes where you think it's going to go, and the other one very much doesn't.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I found it kind of similar. Like, as soon as Johnny and his friends, you know, start researching, looking for someone famous hoping that they could find that one hidden famous person to save the cemetery. I thought, oh, okay, here we go. This is going to be something that's along those lines. But by the final arc, it, it does take a, an interesting kind of left-field turn and mm. one that I didn't expect. But at the same time, like it, it, it makes sense. Like I think I found that if, if they did happen to find someone, it would be kind of a little bit cliched and predictable in that sense. But Pratchett... He, he kind of disguises this concept of like, why are the dead still hanging around the cemetery for? Because when you think about it, like the afterlife, you, you either you know, go to heaven or, or wherever, or you kind of hang around. The reason why you're hanging around Earth is because you're hoarding the place or you've got a reason to hang on to something. Mm. So I found that quite interesting and in, in in the sense of like how Pratchett sort of works out a way for the dead to kind of lead the cemetery, but for the cemetery to still sort of be around, and I'm, mm. I guess I guess we might sort of come to to that later on because it it is quite potent. But um, yeah, it it did, it did kind of lead me on along one path. But like Liz said, like it, it is it is two a plots. Like there is no subplot in in the background. Mm. It's just kind of side by side. And you know, I guess I was expecting a bit more evilness, <laughs> like a bit more <laughs> kind of determination from um, the group
0: to like fight back.
1: But uh, I didn't expect that ending, to be honest. Yeah.
0: Which is cool. Like, it's a delight when you can't predict how a plot is going to unfold, even though you feel really smart when you do. Yeah.
2: Mm. Yeah. And I I think, you know, it's also a deliberate rejection of some of the tropes of children's literature, which you get with Yolis's line right near the end, where he's, like, making fun of how, oh, it's just like an Inip Blyton kind of ending. (laughs) Uh, But it's not really, (laughs) you know. it's Yeah, I thought that was very cute. But, yeah, they get into the research of this part of the book. I love this when I was a kid, like any book where the hero is like, we're going to go and look at the library and find out information. We're going to you know, find the old map or the books that tell us what to do because they have no luck finding any famous people who are obviously famous in the graveyard itself. But also their idea of what fame means is really interesting because, you know, this is a time, like you were saying, Oliver, before social media, before the internet, really, where people couldn't become famous unless the media – decided they were of note. Mm. And they don't think of anyone being properly famous unless, you know, they're on TV. Whereas now we don't really care if anyone's on TV. It's like you can be famous if your tweet gets retweeted a million times, you know, so it's, it's a very different idea of what fame means.
1: Yeah. I like the fact that the kids are looking at books to see if they're mentioned because it goes back to the fact that, you know, you're not well known unless someone actually records your achievements. Mm. And even, even um, the roundabout soccer player who, like you know, is known for like, <laughs> like he gets Worst, a mention. Most own goals. Yeah, it's <laughs> so great. He, I love. It's kind of cute that he gets a mention for something that's like not really winning per se, but at least he's mentioned. So I like mm. that that cute touch. But this, you know, apart from gravestones and and their deeds on on, on the gravestones or, or message, how else would you know? And so it it would be through records. If it would be through books. So I like that kind of touch where um, this concept of fame before social media and before the internet, it it had to be books. So uh, it makes you sort of hold on to those books a a bit longer because everyone wants to be famous one day. But how would you actually remember unless someone actually Googles up or in this case goes to a library and and reads about it in, in a book? Yeah.
0: And I feel like that touches on the theme of legacy really well. I know I'm going into one of my pet areas that was in my essay, but um the interesting thing I thought this underscored in the book is how like the theme of legacy is big, but for a lot of people if you're not recorded in a book, if you're not in a newspaper, if you're not in the microfiche, all you had left of you if you died before the internet could have been on your gravestone. And so it is a bigger horror to remove the gravestone of someone who is insignificant, I'd argue, because that's all there is. Whereas if you remove the gravestone of someone famous, there's plenty more places you can find information about them. But someone who just lived a simple life, who was only known to their family and their immediate surroundings in their town, their gravestone told their story in its entirety, like whether it's through words, where it was placed, who it's next to, the kind of imagery with it, that, that was their legacy and so the idea of destroying that is to erase someone entirely from history of the world and that's very sad Mm -hmm.
2: yeah because they they don't have much luck finding information about most of the people buried there but then they do find some information that really strikes a chord with johnny and even has this sort of weird kind of vision reaction to it when they find out about this idea of the pals battalion a bunch of young men who all signed up to fight in the first world war together, but not just all signed up together, but, and this was something they really did as, as Pratchett mentions in the foreword to the book, they signed up together and went into the same company together and got sent to the same battle together. And in a lot of cases then all died together
1: Mm.
2: and he's really affected by that. And there's one of them who didn't die and they don't know what happened to him.
0: Tommy Atkins, which we later find out is a significant name, which is a cool touch as well.
2: Yeah, really almost out of the field, core of something really emotionally significant.
0: Yeah, you know, I think about that quite regularly, like what it would be like to just have all of the young people you grew up with gone or called away, like just, and that was normal for like two generations in our, in our living memory. Mm. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, three almost. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Just in English culture.
1: I mean, you could imagine that making a massive impact in a small town. You know, it's it's basically like a livelihood, a generation sort of gone.
0: And I, I was like, oh, what a, what a ridiculous idea that you'd all go off together. But then I also think, no, like you kind of would want to, like you'd want the people around you that you know. So like it's ridiculous in a cold, pragmatic sense, but it's sensible in an emotional sense. Um, so I think that contrast I found really upsetting as well, Mm. because you can understand why and you can't argue against it strongly. Mm. It's like, why all the Royal family can't travel together. Yeah.
2: I really liked the fact that it's Big Mac who makes, I think the comment where, you know, they find out that Tommy Atkins lived, but they can't figure out where he is or if he came back and he says, well, it'd be really lonely. And then I think it's Yolas who also has the really sort of poignant comment who, you know, they're all all going somewhere together. And he says, I wonder if they ever got there eventually. And he has that moment where it takes him a second to realize what he's saying, but then he gets it and he's like, oh. And they're all kind of struck by it, even Mm -hmm. though Johnny's the one who has the sort of tunnel vision, weird Mm -hmm. kind of premonition. Actually, this is something that's just occurring to me now. Do you think at that moment, Is he having that kind of weird connection because that's when Tommy Atkins dies? Oh. Because when he goes to the home the next day, they say that he died yesterday. And I'm wondering if there's some sort of weird – I mean, I I don't – that's not – like it's it's a a supposition. Like, I don't think that's necessarily supported by the text. But it just occurs to me that might be an interesting way to read that, is that he's got this connection to the dead now. And as he's reading about this guy who's the last one of his battalion to survive, he dies at that
1: moment, and that's where Tommy gets this sense of this is important, this is significant.
0: I hadn't thought of that, but I love it as an idea. Yeah,
1: yeah. it's this concept of, like, your life flashing before your eyes, but in this case it's Johnny exposing that, that flash as well. Mm.
2: Yeah. yeah, someone else's. Like, yeah, oh, that's a nice way to put it, <laughs> I like
1: that.
2: Yeah. yeah, But, yeah, they don't, they don't have much luck, unfortunately, apart from that emotional
0: uh, moment. And the footballer again, which kind of oh yeah, cause that was so good.
2: <laughs> I like that later on. There's just that little note where he's got like left and right written on his shoes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> You're like, oh buddy,
2: oh you need some help.
0: Just needs a compass built into his toes, like into oh, his shoe yeah. toes.
2: They just sort of, like, go, well, this is pointless, and they head to the mall, such as it is, and there's a great passage describing how crap it is uh, compared to the malls you see on TV and <laughs> films in America, and I can totally relate to that. It was like that in my hometown, where they built a sort of shopping centre near to town, and it had a cinema in it, but the rest of it was pretty disappointing. You didn't really want to go there. But yeah, they, uh, they head to the mall, and they hear the dead talking over the radio. <laughs> Johnny's given them a radio so they can keep up with news without having to try and pick up a newspaper. And they've called in uh, because during this trip to the library, Mr. Vicente is like, maybe we don't have to stay in the cemetery. And there's all these great references to him saying, you can escape from anything if you try hard enough. Because um, he, he also, in his background, like before he came to Blackberry and became a children's entertainer, he escaped from World War II in Europe. And there's a nice little through line there of him escaping from everything. And when they're going to the phone box and trying to make phone calls, this is where we really meet Eric Grimm, who's the the one member of the dead who's like, you should you all should all be ashamed of yourselves. And uh, What's wrong with you? You're breaking all the rules. This is
0: okay. Mr. Nominative of Determinism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, there's quite a lot of that in this book. There's a lot of gags about that too.
0: Mm, yeah, we
2: keep asking, who invented that? That was invented by him. That's the name. Sir
0: Humphrey yeah. telephone. <laughs>
2: yeah. But then the next day is, as we say, when Johnny goes to visit his grand, who's in a retirement home called Sunshine Acres. And, again, this is something that I found quite close to me. I have a grandmother who also is suffering from Alzheimer's who is, is doing pretty well at the moment but has been through some pretty intense times where she didn't know who we were and mm. was very upset because she didn't understand what was happening around her or where she was going. So I really identified with this. And I think this is well before Pratchett's own diagnosis with the rare form of Alzheimer's that he had. Mm. It makes sense that probably that was in his family somewhere. And so he had some personal experience of it beforehand. So it felt very real. And it's kind of a little bit distant, which I think also felt real to me because when I was very young and my great-grandmother, who also suffered from the illness, when I would visit her, it was just a bit weird and confronting for me because she didn't know who I was and so I didn't feel entirely comfortable or see the point and Johnny's got that kind of attitude too.
0: Mm. And the inclusion of the grandfather never wanting to come I think was another emotional element to that because the, the mom just explains that he wants to remember her how she was.
2: Yeah which is rough I mean and that's like yeah. with my great-grandparents that's kind of a the very opposite like my great-grandfather stayed with my great grandmother until she died and it was one of those things where he died not long afterwards because he kind of felt like he'd stuck around for the thing he needed to stick around for and i'm sure that's not really what happened but you always get that sort of sense from those sorts of stories so i found that incredibly sad but also i could see that being real as well Um, but that's when he learns that tommy atkins did come back to blackberry and in fact was a resident in the home and had died the day before possibly as we just discussed while they were in the library (laughs) and his funeral is the next day and the nurse sort of talks to him and there's that great line which Pratchett has used before where Johnny realizes he can get away with asking anything as long as he says he's doing a project
0: yes (laughs) it's true as a freelance writer it's true oh really people let you do so many things yeah (laughs) sometimes Um, I write an article because I want to do a thing (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's a great idea But usually the thing is go and see a graveyard at a weird time or, like, see very specific. (laughs) Get into the magic (laughs) archives of the State Library. Yeah, the usual.
2: I started a podcast about reading Pratchett books. I could have done that on my own. I needed to start a podcast about, I don't even know, what would your project be?
1: It's a little trade secret that as a writer, you can basically claim a lot of things as tax deductible. So what you can do is you say, well, I'm going to claim my Xbox because in my stories, one of the kids plays an Xbox. So I need to research... What it's like to play an Xbox or what it's like to go to Tokyo for, uh, 14 days and go on a cruise ship or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's
0: all, it's, it's all, it's all research. So, you know, it's, uh, it's legit. Yeah. Yeah. All your streaming services too is another one. Mm. Yeah. Oh yes. Yeah.
1: yeah. Mm. Yeah,
2: we're giving this all away, but I mean, you know, it's, it's this is sort of compensation for the fact that uh, you don't get paid much as a writer, so uh, you need all the tax deductions you can get. Absolutely, um, and it
0: is research. It's like, you do need to know how to do it; otherwise, it's inauthentic. It's like that Onion article about um, George R. R. Martin not knowing what a horse looked like. Oh, I didn't think people noticed. And I said it flapped its great wings across the plains, and I folded it up and put it in my pocket. It was just <laughs> full of like terrible horse <laughs> descriptions, which <laughs> is really good. Oh, I'd
2: forgotten that. That was very funny. So yeah.
0: Do your research. It's important.
2: <laughs> yeah, particularly if it's on an Xbox. Johnny goes home and has his weird dream. And he doesn't have a lot of dreams in this book. He has a, has a couple. Hmm. And they feel very real dreams because they have things that, that he's been talking about with his friends. Like there's the one where he dreams about fingers because someone's like, pointing a finger at some point. or
0: Alderman was pointing and that was the last bit of him to disappear, I think, or maybe it was Vincenzi. Yeah, oh, no, no, that's that, right. that was Martin, the communist. He was pointing and he had fingers, and then there's a the thumbs up of the pals.
2: Yeah, so he has this dream about weird thumbs, and then he sees, like, Rod Serling walking through the town, like, trying to read from his book, but all his friends are, like, looking over his shoulder and ruining it. I thought that was cute. It felt very much like a real kind of dream that he might have. But the, he finds out the, the dead are calling up the radio again, Um, and he goes back to the cemetery to find out what they're doing in the middle of the night where he meets a couple more of the dead characters who become quite significant towards the end. Uh, Solomon Einstein, who's been mentioned by the alderman earlier, who is some sort of distant relation of Albert, but is a taxidermist uh, who nonetheless has a sort of very keen brain for metaphysics, if not actual physics, and local inventor Addison Vincent Fletcher, who did not invent the telephone, but did improve the telephone. (laughs) I thought that was great. I'm like, yeah, lots of people. Like the first telephone is the famous one, but it was crap. It's the 116 iterations down the line that we use, but no one records who those people are who actually made the amazing inventions useful.
0: And there is also that great thing about people being out of their time or in the wrong moment. Like they have the idea, but the world isn't there yet. So, like you might yeah, invent really. the internet, and there's not a computer system like that kind of thing. So when he like sees a computer, he's like, "This, I, I, I know this." That's cool.
2: Yeah, that was a cool idea, and that's kind of something that gets touched on some of the Discworld novels too, where you know some of the characters in the Discworld get inspiration for things, but they don't quite work because they don't live on our planet. They live on this weird fantasy world <laughs> where things don't work the same. History is kind of like another place in that way. Um, I thought that was cool. Um, but yeah, they they uh managed to figure out that they can manipulate the phone system and travel through the phone wires, which was totally cool. Yeah. I'd do that. If I was a ghost, that'd be cool fun. Mr. Grimm does not like Johnny being there and tries to tell him to go away, and Mr. Vicente hints that there's something quite sinister about Mr. Grimm, or at least something unpleasant, and something that they wouldn't have talked about in the papers.
1: He's such a mysterious character. Yeah, I don't know, there is something eerie about him. I figured that he did something like a, a secret shame in, in town, but no, no one ever really spoke about it, but they kind of knew it, it happened, because he seems to be an outcast of if that makes sense. Like, he's he's around mm. them, but, you know, no one's really paying him much attention. He's very homey in that graveyard sense. He, he's, he's very clinging to his graveyard. But, yeah, I, I figured that it, it was going to come out that he did something yeah, shocking or something, but it, it, it never really popped up.
0: Yeah, I went to the same place that Johnny did. i like, is he a murderer? Did he, like, do a crime? Because he has this very nondescript grave at sort of the edges um, that just basically has his name and there's nothing no no embellishments to it or anything. Mm. And they don't find any mention of the papers, like you said. So I was like, huh, so maybe he was a criminal or something. But I I didn't guess what the answer was. I thought it was interesting how they distinguished him as like an actual ghost rather than. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Because the dead don't like being called ghosts.
0: Yeah. But, but he is one and he is actually doing a haunting. Do they blatantly confirm that or is that just a theory that. Johnny yes.
2: says that that's, he thinks that's what's going on towards the end, but I think also there's a sort of message at the end that he's not really that different from the other dead, except for the way he views his own situation, which is an interesting commentary on what happened to him, I think. So we can come back to that at the yeah. end of the
0: book. Have a big grim, grim talk later. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, and I was waiting for like a Brothers grim sort of reference. I was like, oh, is he going to be related mm, to them? Yeah. Like everyone's like connected and then that didn't come. I'm like, but why is he called Grim? other than he acts grimly? Yeah.
2: I think that's the only reason. Yeah. And, and look, you know, it's a nice shortcut to give someone the name that tells them that. And it's a real name, so why not? Why not? It was
0: other words, though. Sure.
2: Like I, what would you have called him?
0: See, now I'm on the spot. I'm like Mr. Depresso, which is... <laughs> 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 I was going to no. say, like, you know, like,
1: like, like, yeah, like something like Mr. Black or Mr. Deb or something, just like, yeah, like kind of like a, a classic Roald Dowie kind of scene like, what his name is is what he is kind of thing. So. Yeah, 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 just Mr. gets you Glee. into the,
2: the right frame of mind when reading about yeah. him straight away. Yeah. Although it's interesting because you mentioned Roald Dahl doing that, and I think he did that most in his books that were for younger readers than I think maybe this is pitched at.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think you only have to think about the farmers in Fantastic Mr. Fox, for example. Like, they just basically, you know who they are straight away. There's a reason why he's, he's called Mr. Grimm. Maybe it's a way to set up for the kids to know what to expect from him later on, perhaps.
0: Yeah. yeah. So they're ready
2: mm. for it. They know mm. it's going to be something bad. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. All right. Mr. Foreshadowing is not a good name. So. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Mr. Telegraph. Probably not. <laughs> Mr. Plot. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh,
2: the next day, after Johnny goes home, he's a bit spooked out by what the dead are up to and by Mr. Grimm. He goes home, and the next day he goes to Tommy Atkins' funeral and meets Mr Atterbury, who is a local member of, I guess it's like kind of the UK equivalent of the RSL Club, um, mm. Returned Servicemen's League, if you're an overseas listener. That's what we have here.
0: I could not stop picturing him as David Attenborough because of his name. Like, so it had to settle in my brain, and I was just imagining... Okay that the whole time
2: that's, that's interesting because I kind of saw him as um, there's a particular actor whose name I'm not going to remember but he's played similar characters uh, he's always sort of got a very stiff upper lip and he's usually got a, a moustache and that's sort of who I pictured him as which is interesting I was having a discussion with someone recently about do I picture people with specific faces and as characters and usually I don't but I did really have a very clear image of what I thought Mr. Atterbury looked like but yeah uh, he meets him And they talk about Tommy Atkins and the dead have all come to the funeral as well. They've strayed quite far from the graveyard now and they say they're getting better at doing that.
0: But they say it's allowed as well because of the specific reasons and like, who laid down these rules for you. Yeah, that's Mm. interesting, isn't it?
2: Yeah. Um, But as they're sitting there talking on the bench, Tommy Atkins appears as one of the dead on the bench and he sort of smiles at Johnny And then the Pals Battalion comes down the road um, in a big procession and he goes off with them and they leave.
0: And he goes from old to young because he's old when he's on the bench, but then he goes to the age of the Pals when he's off with them. I was interested in the symbolism of that because I was wondering, like, did part of him die at that age? as well oh. and that's why he because i am always interested in what age the ghosts will appear as like do you appear yeah. as the age you died or do you appear at the age you imagine yourself or do you appear as the age that that is your personal peak and so the fact that it was addressed so specifically that he looked his original age but then he became the age his friends died yeah because he had two deaths in a way
2: yeah that's mm. really interesting because this is quite different to Discworld books where death is a major character, and quite often we meet people who've just died. And in the Discworld, they pretty much always start out looking how they did when they died, but then very quickly morph into the way they've always thought of themselves. And that's even in very early books like Mort, that's specifically explained as how it works. Whereas in this book, most of the dead, if not all of them, apart from um, Tommy, look how they did at the time that they died. They're all sort of that age and they all behave as they would have around that age when they were alive. You know, it's only as the book goes on that they kind of discover they have any other options. And yet for Tommy, that's just natural as he goes with them. And Tommy is going back to France, which is something Johnny realizes. And he says that out loud, And which is a nice moment where Mr. Atterbury says, how did you know that he's going back to France? Because he said in his will he wants to be buried with the battalion.
0: With ashes mm. scattered.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Which is, I just thought that was that was quite nice. But it also forms a pretty quick and believable bond between Johnny and Mister Atterbury, where he's like, this young man? Is taking an in interest and thinks and understands how important this stuff is, and is asking questions, like what a nice mm. young man he is." <laughs> so I really liked
0: that. That was mm. great. It was a nice sequence, and it also opens up the possibilities for the dead as a moving along the plot sort of device. It's like if the pals can come all that way. what's keeping these people tethered to their graveyard
2: yeah Hmm. yeah and there's that nice moment where johnny almost tells mr atterbury that he saw tommy atkins as you know after he was dead but mr vicente says no i don't do that i want to show you something and takes him back to the cemetery where yeah the dead are all having a great time they're swimming in the canal they're watching tv
0: they're watching neighbors or yeah
2: (laughs) yeah i like that little tribute this mm-hmm. is a callback from the first book where it's, it's also the thing that everybody watches. And there's also that great bit where Johnny first asks all his friends to come to the cemetery with him, And he says, we'll go after school. And they're like, but we've got to watch Cobbers. Don't you know what's happening this week? And that's the one thing that makes Johnny go, all right, after Cobbers. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> yeah, after
0: Darlene's cute. found out about the surfboard, then we can, yeah. All right. Yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs> so great. Uh, yeah. I really liked that.
0: Um, yeah, uh, and this
2: is where Johnny gets the idea to tell them that there's an old car in the canal. Nothing happens with that yet, but this is you know already been planted in our minds at the start of the book that this is going to happen. Johnny also tries to talk to Mr. Grimm, but Mr. Grimm does not want to talk about himself, and he still is very disapproving of all the fun that the dead are having. This is just the bit where I'd already been won over by most of the dead, but right at this point I'm just like, I love them all. <laughs> yeah. What a bunch of cool people.
0: Where do they get their clothes from? Do they just imagine themselves new clothes? Because um, Mrs. Liberty has a bathing costume, like a traditional sort of 1920s one with pants and everything. Um, And I'm like, oh, do you just like brain yourself a new outfit?
2: Yeah, it seems to be. And I mean, that's part of their evolution is they seem to realize that they're not stuck. Like they can change themselves and they can go places and they can do things. And, yeah, part of that is realizing we don't have to be the same as we were. We can be whatever we want, slowly.
0: i thought a whole book of them having a great time. Like, we got glimpses of it, but I always want to read just a 300-page book about them just having fun. <laughs> <laughs> that would be cool.
2: But look, this is where we get to the crux of the, the Save the Cemetery plot because Viola says there's going to be a meeting tonight, a public meeting about the cemetery, because it turns out quite a few people in the town are a bit annoyed about the whole cemetery thing because supposedly it was sold for like five pence or yeah. next to nothing because it costs too much to upkeep. And Wobber's like, sure, we can go, but remember, tomorrow night's Halloween and that's my party, so we're all still coming for that, right? They decide they're going to head to the meeting. Meanwhile, at the cemetery... The dead don't want to go back into the cemetery. Mm. Uh, and they're like, well, we don't need to, but they all, but this is where they start to discuss. There's this stuff that they just seem to know. Like when they're dead, they just know that one day you won't be around anymore. It's just stuff you arrive knowing when you're dead. And there's sort of this received knowledge that is different from the idea of an afterlife which is great because there's a recurring gag where William Stickers, as a staunch Marxist, is like, there is no afterlife, the nonsense. <laughs> and you're like, oh, yeah, why are you here? And he's like, look, just because I'm here doesn't mean that this idea of an afterlife is correct.
0: <laughs> that's got, he's got strong beliefs, he, and he sticks to them. You know, that's almost admirable.
1: Well, hence his name.
0: <laughs> oh, I didn't make that connection. It's so good. Yeah, some things never die. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry, did we skip over the bit where Mr. Vincenzi calls Johnny's house, though, and his granddad is there, and he's like, oh, how have you been? Oh, I haven't seen you. Oh, you're dead. All right, all right, cool. All right, um, that's, yeah, Um, how's that going for you? And he sort of, he goes back to the TV afterwards, and he's like, hang on. And then that's. T- <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is, you know, it's a recurring theme for Johnny's granddad, because he also has that later on in the book when Johnny tries to tell him what's been going on, and then he sees Johnny on the TV, and he's, like, telling his daughter about it. She's like, yes, Dad. <laughs> That's very realistic, but people don't really listen or pay attention and then realize the significance of something afterwards. Mm. But yes, they go along to the the public meeting um, and there's a whole bit about the horribleness of these very bureaucratic meetings that always happen the same way, probably all over the universe, which is a very tragedy (laughs) comment to make. He's always doing these little asides that I love them every time where he says, yeah, probably there are ice beings on the moons of Venus who have to deal with this stuff.
0: And it's a language as well for push and pull, but in like, alien language, which is cool.
2: That was great. Very quickly it becomes apparent to Johnny that the members of the local council and from United Amalgamated Consolidated Holdings have no intention of changing course. No matter what anyone says, they're just here to put on a show of we're listening to your concerns. Uh, and so he gets up and talks and there's there's a great bit there where he feels like he's drowning in the nonsense, like the bureaucracy. And the only way he could like get above it is to stand up and take a breath and then speak Mm. and i just that was so evocative i really loved that
0: yeah and i didn't realize that the man he'd met earlier i keep saying attenborough is there and really backs his his claim to talk so he supports him being heard because they want to save questions until the end but he's like i can't i gotta be in bed by 10 o'clock and everyone's like yes people under (laughs) 30 should be in bed by 10 o'clock we we approve (laughs) that was
2: very cute i enjoyed that bit yeah his speech is quite inspiring. Like, you know, Johnny has these moments where when, and this happens in the first book where they're sort of talking about, cause the first book is very much about the Gulf war. And there's a bit where they're talking about that in class. And he suddenly comes out with this idea of it's not as simple as you think being like a soldier in these things. Like you're told what to do and you're in a terrible situation and it's quite a nuanced and empathetic response that just comes out of him. And in a similar way, he has this moment in, in the meeting, where even though he's more deliberately standing up to speak, he kind of finds himself saying this stuff that he's kind of had going on in the back of his head and now comes out of his mouth about the importance of history and also like countering all of the bureaucratic nonsense that the uh, people on the panel are saying, including, oh, it was, it was too expensive. He's like, oh, you say that, but you just mean it's too expensive, not selling it.
0: because <laughs> You could be making something. money. Yeah. yeah.
2: And he's backed up, as you say, by Mr. Adderbury and a lot of the other locals, they're all sort of like, yeah. And the counselors and the people from the company just get embarrassed basically and they leave, which is, <laughs> yeah. which is great. I'd kind of forgotten how that meeting went because I haven't read the
1: book for a long time, but I just, this feels great.
0: Yeah. You know, it's good solidarity, which, um, you don't feel all the time in books.
1: Yeah. I liked it from the point of view that kids always get a sense that they're not being heard by adults, and adults can be quite condescending, say, oh, you know, the adults are talking now, like, you know, kind of thing. But to have Johnny stand up there and and speak his mind and have his voice be heard, I found was quite empowering, actually, from a child's point of view. So I think this scene kind of works on, on so many levels. Absolutely.
2: There's two other things I really liked about it, one of which was the whole idea of when they're speaking, it's punctuated by these sounds because they're not having this in a proper meeting place. Like there's a squash game going on next door and every now and then (laughs) someone walks up to try and get out and they push the door that they should be pulling and it makes a noise and that adds full stops and semicolons into people's speeches, which I thought (laughs) was just a genius idea. But I also really love the fact that it's not all resolved in this one meeting because a lot of these stories, you get to the town meeting and either – the people at the meeting make the terrible decision and then the kids in the story have got to undo it or they're about to make the terrible decision and the kid stands up and says his piece and then everyone changes their mind and they vote against it and overturn the thing. Whereas in this Mm. one, neither of those things really happen. Like they do embarrass the company and the counselors, but they're just like, well, we were going to listen to you, but if you're going to be unreasonable, we're off. And then the people just decide, well, maybe we can fix this on our own, but we have more work to do. So they Mm. form a little organisation.
0: Blackberry Jam. Yeah. (laughs) Or Preserve.
2: There's that great song, the Village Green Preservation Society, originally uh, by the Kinks, I think. But yeah, there's, there's still more work to do. And there's a lovely moment where they're trying to figure out what they're going to call themselves. And Johnny suggests calling themselves the Blackberry Pals, which was the name of Tommy Atkins' battalion and he's like mm, that's not quite right but their formal name was the blackberry volunteers and that sounds pretty good mm. Mm. everything about that chapter i really enjoyed not least what's going on with the dead at the same time which is that they're out on the town having a great time uh spooking people out by making things cold or explode yeah. <laughs> there's that great bit with the the policeman gets the phone call about all the weird stuff happening in the town and it's like Every small town horror film like Gremlins or The Blob or something where the policeman gets the phone calls and just says, this is nonsense. And then as he's leaving, he has that moment where he's like, wait, just because it always happens in the movies, that doesn't necessarily mean it can't be true, (laughs) (laughs) which I thought was hilarious. And it culminates in... Uh, Fletcher, the telephone guy, and Einstein visiting the local radio telescope over the phone and then projecting (laughs) themselves out into space and bouncing off the moon. And you're like, this guys could do anything. This is amazing.
0: So that's why there's a man in the moon. It's a ghost. Yep,
2: just bouncing (laughs) off. It's just dead people.
0: (laughs) 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 It's like a ride. It's like Disneyland for them.
2: (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on for the dead. Lots of little vignettes there.
0: Yeah, I've
1: got this image of like all these old people being cooped up in a nursing home. And then they get the keys to the van and they start going this massive road trip and just wanting to do the things that they <laughs> always wanted to do for so long. Yeah, it's quite cool. Like I, it, it got me thinking about how do the dead travel? What, what are they made of? What kind of matter are they? Like, can they really be sent through telephone lines? And I'm not a science person, but you know, how can they transmit themselves kind of thing? So mm. that kind of got me thinking about, okay, well, I wonder how this is going to be sort of resolved at the end of the story then can they have both? Can, can they live in the graveyard and just go on trips? But then someone mentions that like the longer you you stray from the graveyard, the more you forget yourself. Mm. Mm. And so yeah. I'm like, Oh, okay. So there's the risk there, isn't it? Like, you know, you might be having all this fun, but you really do need to return back to where you kind of came from. But I really did enjoy that round the world trip though, because they're always looking for like, what time is it? And you know, when <laughs> it's at midnight, and they don't realize as they go around the world, the times always change. And, there's a really cute uh, New York gag in there that I quite like as well. I've been Americans, and so that was quite a cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. It's it's kind of like Around the World in 80 Days, the ghost version, but just wrapped up in, <laughs> in like a chapter. So yeah, really cool. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and it's kind of like you, like the vignettes, I am trying to decide if I like them or not. I think I, I, think I really like them because you sort of like, you get a quick glimpse and you're like, oh, I want more of that and it leaves you wanting more. But as much as I said I'd like a 300-page book about that, I think maybe the fact that it does leave you wanting more works a lot better, perhaps because you can fill in the gaps with your imagination and it is such a frantic scramble for them that that's actually really cool. And it's funny because at the beginning they had that whole joke about witches being abroad. I'm a really mis- misunderstanding what that means about witches abroad on Halloween. Because um they're like what in Mallorca or whatever, I guess old ladies <laughs> get discounts. And so yeah, like uh, the supernatural beings are abroad on Halloween and that's kind of really cool.
2: Yeah. And I liked as you were saying, oh, there's a the bit where they're talking about the rules and how they can't break them and they're worried about, you know, we have to be back by dawn. The solution that the two sciencey minded dead come up with is that we can just travel around the world you know before dawn comes and that reminded me of like there's that sequence in gremlins 2 where they make fun of the rules about gremlins billy's trying to describe to someone yeah you can't feed them after midnight and they're making fun of him they're going okay okay so what happens if there's a gremlin on a plane and it's just crossing (laughs) the international date line and it's no longer midnight? and you're like yeah like Rules about dawn and midnight make a lot of sense when you don't travel very far, and so those things feel like something concrete. Yeah. But as soon as you are able to travel around the world at very fast speed, you understand that those things are very arbitrary. Just because it's midnight here doesn't mean it's midnight somewhere else.
0: Are you saying that if you let go of a sense of place as somewhere you need to be, you can actually have freedom? Should that be <laughs> oh, no. potentially the theme?
2: what (laughs) i didn't even know i was saying that (laughs) this the the themes the themes people so many things
0: in so many different ways but yeah letting go of place specific place yeah just as um people are starting to fight for it so what originally was two storylines going in the same direction start to veer away Mm. in motivation as well because you think everyone wants the same thing but the ghosts are now like do we need the graveyard just as all the humans are like let's save the graveyard
2: yeah it's that transition of thinking as you do when you're a kid that a graveyard is for dead people and then realizing as you get older that actually funerals and memorials the dead person's not there like they don't need it it's for us Mm. it's for the ones left behind Mm. that's the journey that johnny goes on through this book but in a much more literal fashion (laughs) (laughs) which was great and he has that wonder in too like he's like thinking about in this part of the book, he's like, well, the pals don't have to stay in the graveyard. Why did the dead have to stay there? Where do these rules come from? And he tries to go and find them and tell them that I think we're getting somewhere with saving the cemetery. But when he gets there, there's nobody there except Mr. Grimm, who's watching the ghost of this old television. I really liked that things have an existence and then they don't, then there can be this after image, just like a ghost or the dead are it's after image of a person, but he's watching on TV as Mr. Atterbury very subtly, like sort of makes fun of and, and uh, shows that he could humiliate United Amalgamated Consolidated Holdings, but doesn't. He's like holding back. I could go there, but I don't need to. And there's that great bit where he's moving the 10 coin through his fingers. It's mm-hmm. twice as much as they paid for the cemetery. Like I'll offer you double your money so we can keep it. Uh, but Mr. Grimm's like, no, this is terrible. They've all gone, and they're going to get themselves in terrible trouble, and one day they're just not going to be here. One day a day will come. Some of them translate that into Judgment Day. But they seem to be having a great time, and they mm. don't care. And when Johnny goes back again to the cemetery later on, and the dead still aren't there, there's lots of people cleaning the place up. And he can't even find Mr. Grimm, but this is where he says... I've worked it out. You're an actual ghost. You're doing a haunting here, aren't you? Mm. you? can't leave. Mm. He's not being mean, though, to Mr. Grimm. And I think that's one of the core things that I love about Johnny in all the books is that at his core, he's just a very kind person. Mm. And he doesn't always get it right or know what to do, and he always feels very put upon because he's the one who happens to be the person who has to fix things. But he's just hes very kindly disposed to other people.
0: Yeah, he cares about stories, I think, like people as individuals and their own stories.
2: Yeah. This is the crux of the kind of kids' adventure part of the story as well because the next night they all go to Wobbler's Halloween party where there's a bunch of very silly jokes Um And some fairly disparaging comments. I mean, it's interesting in this book, after having a great character who, at the same time, is like the token girl in the previous Johnny book. In this book, there isn't one. And there's this sort of mention of, there were some girls who came to wobbler's party, which is about as far as it ever gets. And They don't even get names. And you're like, oh, okay. But there's some fun stuff there and some suspect stuff. They Mm. go to the party. It's not a very good party. So they leave, go to the mall. That's also not a very good party. (laughs) And as they leave there, Johnny cunningly leads his friends back to the cemetery. He's like, I've got to figure this out. I know something's not right.
0: I was like, is it me constantly leading people to the cemetery? Like, <laughs> wouldn't it be cool if we just like hung out at the cemetery? Like, I feel like...
2: Is that what you're saying, Liz? You like, want us no, to go and record a like, I know a, a place and it's
0: always the cemetery. <laughs> is that like the yeah. Twitter thing? <laughs>
2: This is making me want to go to a cemetery.
0: Oh, it's just before the pandemic, like before the first lockdown, I had actually mapped out a bunch of cemeteries I wanted to visit on like a road trip across oh. different areas, and now I can't do it. But, I mean, they'll still be there, so it's fine.
2: <laughs> yeah, they're not going anywhere. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. But like, can you imagine being stopped by the police and they're like, where are you going? What essential thing are you doing? I'm like, I'm gonna go look at some cemeteries.
1: It's for projects, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's for the projects.
0: Like, oh, will you an escort, it's going
1: <laughs>
2: Genius, genius. <laughs> this is where the bit that would be in the famous five version of this story happens, which is they go back to the cemetery in this mist. It's all misty and foggy, which is implied to be something about the fact that the dead are off doing weird stuff. Or at least
0: something mysterious. Oh no! Oh
2: no! I should (laughs) have seen that one coming. (laughs) A mistake. Will they get up to some mischief? Because uh, there's the sound of a bulldozer, and they knew that. It wasn't just the graveyard that the company wants to build on. There's also the old boot factory next door, and there's some great lines about how they had such a crap slogan. If it's a boot, it's a BlackBerry, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. which is <laughs> such a terrible... It's 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 exactly the kind of thing you would find, though. But yeah, this old rubber boot factory that is going to be knocked down, and there's bulldozers already in there, has started the work. And as they come to the cemetery late at night, they hear a bulldozer through the mist it's starting up and it's clearly going to demolish it. And they realize someone's doing this on the sly and they think that if they ruin the cemetery, they'll get their way.
0: Because like, if it's already destroyed, like there's nothing to preserve, which did happen in Melbourne with a pub that was supposed to be preserved. And they just sneaky demolished it and thought they'd get away with it. But then they got charged with a whole lot of crimes and had to pay a bunch of money, I think. So that worked out. I mean, the pub's still demolished and that's sad, but at least they didn't get away with it. But so this is a thing that developers do. Mm.
2: And there was some talk at the time, too, that, you know, the the level of fines that they're able to give people who do that is inadequate because they're going to make way more profit Mm. building a block of apartments or whatever on the site and selling it than they're ever going to be fined for destroying a landmark they weren't supposed to be allowed to in the first place.
0: Did you get a fine and also your license revoked from building on that site?
2: Yeah, it did seem weird that. That they were allowed to go ahead. But yeah, they send Wobbler off to get Mr. Atterbury as Johnny suspects what's going on. And then, um, out of the mist come a couple of men who grab Johnny and Yolas. And then this is Big Mac's big moment because he comes screaming out of the mist going, Oh, I'll kick you. And he's actually got like bleeped out swear words (laughs) in the book, which I thought was great. But he's like, I'll kick your head in. I'll kick your head in. And he's like channeling all his skinhead business, which actually is something that I think we need to address. Like, Big Mac wants to be a skinhead, or at least that's sort of the image that he's cultivating, because that's what his brother is and and his brother's mates. And in the first book, he's obviously part of his older friends are criminals who are stealing cars and stuff. And so he's got this identity where he wants to be a skinhead, which obviously has a lot of pretty serious connotations about political and ethical (laughs) questions. But I don't think there's any suggestion that Big Mac gets that part of it. Do you think?
0: I feel like maybe it's a costume for him, and so he doesn't look deeper than the look of it because perhaps that's what his brother is, and maybe he's surrounded by that as in his friends. So it is a costume he has to put on to be safe and to fit in. Because if you're surrounded by skinheads and you want to not be like that, I assume it's not exactly the safest way to be. So. Even if he's not overtly doing that as a self preservation method, I do think it is a self preservation method. I doubt he'd be into the ideology of it or even know the ideology of it. It's just what he has to do to protect himself, even from his brother.
2: Mm. Mm. But uh, he runs out of the fault. It's such a.
0: He knows how to use it, though, like to yeah. his advantage if he must.
2: We just read The Amazing Maurice and His Educated Rodents, which um, is a is another great one of Pratchett's children's books. Highly recommend to you, Oliver. Maurice is a cat. And there's a moment in that where Maurice fights a bunch of really big, dangerous rats. And there's a line where in that moment, he could have taken down a pack of wolves. And there's a very similar kind of description of Big Mac in this book, where it's like in that moment, he was unstoppable mm. for just long enough to make a difference. And then, you know, Pratchett does, again, something similar to in that other book where he does fight them off, but it's more that he scares them off because they realize that the jig is up rather than that they feel seriously physically threatened. Like they're both taken aback for a moment, but then one of them just punches him in the chest and he falls over and then they go, let's get out of here. You know, they're not afraid for more than that moment when this kid with boots and braces comes out of the fog <laughs> with a tire iron, I think he's got... No,
0: he does bite one of them on the ear. And I was, I can't remember when... But when was it that Mike Tyson bit off Evander of Holyfield's ear? Like, when oh, was that? It could was have it been around this, this time. Like, I think that was in the 90s. I think yeah. it was like late 90s, yeah. I think. Might have okay, been so, afterwards. Yeah. So maybe it's just a thing that people do. They bite you. Ear- I've never been in the fist fight. <laughs> yeah. So um, I don't know if that's a thing you do. It's a good detail.
2: I don't think so, but hey, look, when you're a kid fighting off guys who are grabbing your friends, you get in your know, licks where you can,
0: I guess. Um, or, or your binds. <laughs> I think they'd be more freaked out if you licked them. Like yeah. If you were in a fight with someone <laughs> and they licked your face, you'd kind of be like, I'm going to leave now.
2: Well, particularly at the moment. <laughs> yeah. You'd be pretty freaked out. I don't think you'd be okay with it. Well, not that you'd be okay with it anyway. It's hard to
0: lick someone through a mask, though. Like, I True. assume they're doing, like, a, a social distance fight with masks, um, <laughs> a metre and a half apart.
2: <laughs> yeah. We'll have to switch to insult fighting.
0: Well, you, you, no, um, what is it? Like, the one with sticks? Um, staffs. Oh, yeah. Get staffs. Yeah. Swords. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you yeah. do some fencing. That's,
2: yeah. Old school dueling mm. with pistols. That's more than a metre and a half. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it depends on how small your paces are. (laughs) It's
2: got its its own problems. Uh, But anyway. um, uh, But, yeah, look, he he manages to scare them off. They leave. Uh, Wobbler comes back with Mr. Atterbury, and Wobbler also, and this is the other thing where Wobbler, like, sort of does his bit to save the day, is he scopes the license plate of the van that the two men drive off in. And this is great thing where everyone else is talking and he's, like, trying to explain how he's written it in the huff on the window of the car that Mr. Atterbury drove and he has to keep breathing on it so <laughs> yeah. it's still readable. <laughs> that was very cute.
0: And then there's the running joke of how the policeman doesn't know, like, the, the special alphabet because all the words are oh, wrong. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. yeah like yeah.
0: aardvark. That was
2: very funny. Uh, Atterbury's like, well, this, this is pretty gross, but if we can catch these guys, maybe that will really give us enough leverage over United Amalgamated Consolidated Holdings to make them leave the cemetery alone. And this is when Yolis makes his little, and then they all went home for tea and cakes, lashings of ginger beer, (laughs) kind of (laughs) comments, which the others are like, it's not, it doesn't feel like that. This has been a bit full on (laughs) and scary. Um, and they have to convince Big Mac to go to the police to give a statement, and Yolis decides to go with him, which is when Johnny and Wobbler go into the cemetery by themselves, mm. um, where they find a character who has been present through much of the book, but hasn't really done anything and still doesn't really do anything now. Right. Mrs. Tachyon, who is kind of described as, I want to use the term bin lady, but they don't really, I don't know that they use that, but it's got, bag she's got that lady. kind of aesthetic. Bag lady. Yeah. Cause she's kind of, wandering around with a shopping trolley full of stuff. Um, and she buys a ticket to the cinema during one of the sequences with the dead because it's a warm place for her to stay out of the elements. So you get the idea that she's probably homeless. Mm. But she seems quite happy. And she also seems to be aware of the dead. And it is a bit tropey because it's that sort of thing where people are, you know, if they have a mental illness, sometimes they lack a few senses, sometimes they have one. Other people don't have. And you're like, oh, yeah. But I get where you're coming from. So she's clearly aware of them in some way. And that culminates in this moment where they're returning to the cemetery and lifting her off her feet. And Johnny floats up in the air and Wobblers freaks out and hides behind a yeah. gravestone. Um, but they're all like little motes of light and they've gone through this whole evolution, not just in terms of what they can do, but also in terms of how they feel because William Stickers revs up the bulldozer and is about to use it to knock the cemetery down himself. And Johnny's like, excuse me, <laughs> what? I've just been through this whole adventure and put myself on the line to save this cemetery. And he's the one who has to tell the dead that we need it. Cause they're like, we don't need it anymore. We can go wherever we want.
0: Yeah. I thought they were going to actually do it. Um, and I had that in one of the toy story movies, that moment where you go, Oh my they're they're going to kill the toys. All the toys are going to die. This is happening. I'm going to be in the cinema yeah. watching every toy from Toy Story die. I thought they were going to knock down the cemetery. And I was like, but I've built an affinity with this. You can't do this to me.
2: And what you were saying before, Oliver, you know, they're, they're worried about forgetting themselves, but then they realize that's the whole point, is that if they stop holding on to the memory of who they were and feeling beholden to it, they can go and do anything they want now. Like they're free of the mortal coil. They're free of the... Ideas that held them back in life, they can do anything they want. And so they all decide they're going to leave and go off and do other stuff, Mm. which they do, but they do thank Johnny. Uh, and I like the way they thank him. And he's like, I didn't really even do anything. I was just kind of here. And they're like, sometimes that's the important thing, which is what they say about Tommy Atkins, who didn't die or do anything necessarily super brave in the war in in terms of getting medals, but he was there. Mm. He did his bit and mm. um that's how they think of, of johnny's contribution which i thought was really nice what do we think of the ways that the dead take their leave from the cemetery because we get a few different uh exits
0: i liked death the character showing up though not overtly it's just via font um for the gondola yes that was quite good
2: uh yeah. quite possibly a different version who knows
0: the gondola was cool i like that
2: yeah that was a nice little nod and the the idea that he's probably going to reorganize wherever he ends up. And the idea that maybe that's hell, <laughs> he's going to reorganize <laughs> the hell, make it more communist. I'm like, that sounds like a great idea. <laughs> then there's Einstein and Fletcher who build their flight of imagination, which they use as a, a sort of an extension of the idea of a train of thought. Mm. That was cool. I thought that was super cool. Mm. Um, and then we get uh, a and Mrs. Liberty in the spirit of the Ford Capri <laughs> yes. as they drive off into infinity. Uh, and Mr. Vicenti, who just sort of like invisible elevator style floats up into the air. I just I thought it was really nice that it, it kind of suited all their characters. Mm. Although I don't know how I feel about Mrs. Liberty going off with um, Thomas Bowler. That seemed a bit unnecessary.
0: Maybe it's just companionship. Like it's just a rollicking adventure that the two of them can have together rather than separately. Because it's it's good to have someone around. Like I didn't necessarily think that they were a thing. Good. And I'd prefer to think that it was not a thing, I kind of just like a like a buddy movie.
1: Mm. Mm. I think
2: I wouldn't normally think that, but there's sort of a lot of more traditional stuff in the book, particularly from a gender perspective. But you're right, it's not really in there. And in the same way, you know, uh, Einstein and Fletcher are going off together to have adventures and they're super excited, they're cute, like, you know, BFFs to death. <laughs> I love it. <laughs>
0: Is it a nod to previous flying cars? Is it like Marty McFly and Doc going off? Or is it like the Grease flying car? Or like, is it a new different flying car altogether? Is it Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? Like, <laughs> what what homage is it? Or is it all of them or a new one? I just, I'm not sure. Did you say Mr. Vincenzi literally floats up? Because I think I missed that one.
2: Yeah, no, he literally just sort of rises up into the air and disappears while he like shakes the last of the doves in that recurring gag he's got. Every time he talks to someone, he's like producing birds or doing little magic tricks.
0: Okay, because, like, the strong implication is that he drowned not um being able to get out of handcuffs while doing a magic trick, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like he finally floats up to the surface and is free of that, oh, like he finally escaped that then potentially.
2: Because yeah. his last words that he says are about that trick.
0: Yeah, and so if he drowned underwater unable to undo his shackles, that is kind of like a completing his arc kind of going to the afterlife yeah and that
2: makes sense i hadn't thought of that hmm. and then um the only one left behind eventually is mr grim and johnny promises to find out about him before he leaves and then we just get the sort of the you know, the aftermath of the book the, the sort of little more at the end
0: we never get the after geography
2: <laughs> <laughs> we get a little bit of after physics in this I think, <laughs> maybe i'm
0: not sure after home ec.
2: but um yeah, Big Mac um, is emboldened by his success saving his friends. He stands up to his brother and punches him out and moves out of home to go and live in the spare room at Yolis's place.
0: Which has been foreshadowed but not heavy-handedly. So I think that was good because you're like, yeah, I believe that. That's not just something that happens.
2: Yeah. They do use the threat of going public with this uh, crime To force United Amalgamated Consolidated Holdings to not only back down and move their factory or new development to another place, but also to make a big donation to the BlackBerry Volunteers so that the cemetery is going to be looked after. We're about to talk about suicide, and even though it's in an explicitly fantasy context, it's a topic we take seriously. If you or anyone you know needs help, please check our show notes for some places to contact. And then we get the big reveal for Mr. Grimm when Johnny goes back to the cemetery and hides a tiny little portable TV that runs off batteries in there for him and reveals that he did find out about him in the paper. Uh, well, not in the paper, but he found out by researching him that he died by suicide, which is a pretty full-on thing to find out right at the end of the book. And it's kind of handled with it with some compassion, but it's also a bit blunt.
0: I would have liked to have more airtime afterwards, because he's not a nice character through the whole book, and he is quite literally holding everyone else back. And I don't love the implication that someone who took their own life in their afterlife is a burden on those around them. I'm not necessarily saying that's what's being implied. That's why I would have liked there to be a little bit more time to show another side of him to give that idea more time to breathe, otherwise that's the only impression we're left with. I don't think it was a bad idea, that's his backstory, but the way it's left, I think it draws too much of a line that is negative. Not so much that it's irredeemable or I'd want it gone, I just think I'd have liked a bit more time given after that reveal and perhaps a little more redeemability put in before the reveal Mm. to soften him a bit.
2: Oliver, you've dealt with some pretty serious themes in some of your books. What do you think about the handling of this storyline of Mr. Grimm?
1: Yeah, I, I had to kind of reread that revelation again, actually. Like, the revelation of the suicide was actually hidden in one of Hatch really lines. Mr. Grimm had taken life very seriously, starting with his own. Mm. And then you go, oh, yeah, I get that. And then you had really go, oh, hang on, what, really? Oh, okay. So, you know, for kid's book, I think there's some very clever ways of bringing up heavy issues in lighthearted ways. Morris Kleitzman does a really great job in doing that. Like he really is able to sort of extract something that's so sort of um serious, but do it in a way that's easy to handle. And yeah, I don't know. I just don't know if it's handled in the right way. Only only in that sense where because it's literally towards the end of the book. And mm. there is there is some closure in knowing what happened to him, but likely said there's not really a closure into His overall character there's no additional scene except for him just watching tv again so you just have this image of this lonely old man who's mostly been uh, a foil for the whole book and he's just there watching tv on his own again so yeah i don't know Uh, maybe he's trying to make a point perhaps but yeah
0: but what point yeah
1: Mm.
2: i agree with absolutely everything that you've said about that also the extra dimension to it that makes me feel a little bit better about it is that there's this strong implication that you know johnny is saying to him you can leave whenever you want and the problem is he hasn't been shown kindness and he hasn't been given the help or he hasn't known how to seek it out and particularly at the time when he's depicted as having died like that's probably most people's experience of depression i mean even now it's quite hard to talk about it and to get help. Mm. Maybe there isn't really such a thing as this distinction between a ghost and a dead person, but how they think about themselves. And that was kind of the impression I was left with, is that, you know, Mr. Grimm is still depressed. He's still trapped by his own mental illness and and by the things that are weighing him down. So I guess in that sense, I think it's quite realistic. But I agree that it would have been nice to have explored it a bit more rather than just sort of drop it as this big reveal at the end which feels like it's there for a bit of shock value and not really explored with a great deal of care, which seems unusual because usually, you know, Pratchett has a lot of care and you can clearly see he's sympathetic. Like, you know, there's that bit where he talks about how it was illegal in those days, which is why it didn't get mentioned in the paper, which of course makes sense because then you show someone how much life is worth living if they fail and then you put them in prison and you're like, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Mm. But yeah, I, I feel like he could have been Handle a bit
0: better. I agree that there's empathy there. Like it doesn't feel at all like Pratchett is condemning him or judging him or anything like that. I just feel it would have given the book an extra slight more value or heft or underscored the message a bit better. If there's even one more beat, like mm. if there was one more scene. Not even like a long scene, even a line like where Johnny like it doesn't have to be naff, but where Johnny comes back like later to visit him or we check in, like, a month later or a year later or there's, like, a hint of something. Like, I don't believe that he should try and wrap up his depression in a nice bow and have it fixed by the end of everything. It just needed a little bit more time to breathe, like one more beat to move it past the the reveal and then that's it. Do you think that Johnny would come back to check up on him? Like, do
1: do you get a sense that he will return?
0: I think he would.
1: Yeah, 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 I reckon
2: so. I mean, we've seen... From what we've seen of him in this book and the previous one, he he does take those kind of obligations uh, seriously, and you know, and it is that kindness that I think really endears him to you as a character. And yeah, I, I like to think that he would go back, yeah,
1: mm. for sure.
0: So maybe um, like Oliver's question is very good because like if we do think that he'd come back, maybe that is the extra beat, and we don't need it because when we close the book, we we do think that he would come back, and that isn't the end of it. So just because the Mm. book's finished, the story isn't. So Mm. while from a storytelling perspective, I would have liked to see it in terms of imagining it continuing beyond the pages, perhaps that's enough because the character has been established as someone who would care. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that
2: that brings us to the end of Johnny and the Dead.
0: Grim way to end. (laughs) I
2: know. I mean, luckily it's not where we end the episode of the podcast because now we'll talk about, you know, are there any things that we missed out that we want to talk about? Before we get onto the cool stuff, I think it is also worth saying, there's a few things in this book where I read it and I was a bit like, oh, I don't think you'd put that in the book now. Like the name of the, the arcade machine that gets blown up mm. in the bar and you're like, mm, okay,
0: yeah. Um. I, I think I gasped when I saw that. I was like, oh my gosh, like, that's still in the book, but yeah. Yeah. But what, you know, by contrast, listen, sorry, if you haven't
2: read the book, it's called Nuke the Gook, which is... Yeah, but you know, it's not there's no joke made about it apart from that's the name of the machine and it explodes.
0: It's true to the era perhaps. Like maybe that yeah. was a game. Maybe.
2: I don't well, I don't think so.
0: I don't want to see my ads um if I google that though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're cool.
2: <laughs> By contrast is the bit like when Johnny goes to Wobbler's party and he has to use the slightly pink sheet and people are saying what are you a gay ghost? Like initially that's like that is funny. Like, But it would be funnier if, you know, one of Johnny's friends was gay and it was a gag amongst them in the same way that, you know, we we were talking about some of the stuff that they say about Yolis, even though you might at first glance go, "Mm, I don't know about this. You're like, but that's how kids talk to each other and because they're friends, you know. um, Even though it does make Yolis a bit of a sort of a token stereotype in some ways, he's also trying to bust out of it Mm. in some Mm. ways. So, but then, yeah, when they do the. The comments about uh, the gay ghost, you're a bit like, mm, yeah, I, I, I know how you kids are thinking about this. It's not, it's not great, but also, you know, kids use words like that. And they don't think about what that means.
0: Mm. Um,
2: they've just learned to use them. So it's still, it's still a little bit like, but at the same time, it's like
0: that's how kids talk. It's authentic uh, to that ear again, like as well.
2: Yeah. Definitely. Nowadays, you'd put a lot more thought into, if you put that kind of language in the book, you'd be doing it for a reason. And you probably wouldn't just let it stand as it is. Like, there'd be some commentary about it. Someone would say that's not cool to say that. Because we've mm. also got in this book, like the whole joke sequence about political correctness and alternative names for the dead, which, you know, and this was when political correctness was all about stupid terminology and people hadn't really cottoned on to what it was really about. Um, or at least that's how it was portrayed. So, yeah, there's a few things in there We like, oh, I don't know if I put that in the book
0: now. Yeah, I think the best definition I heard of political correctness was when I was doing an interview and the person was like, political correctness is a terrible term. It's just being polite and respectful of the people around you. Just just be polite and respectful. And that is yeah. correct. Yeah. <laughs> Which I think is like a great way to look at it. Do not be disrespectful for no reason. Like if if you're so desperate to cling to terms, like ask yourself why, like what purpose does it serve if it's hurting someone?
2: It's not about a list of words that you're not allowed to say. It's about thinking about what the words you choose mean and what message they send to other people and choosing in a way that is not going to adversely affect other people.
0: Yeah, like why would you do it if you, you don't need it and it definitely causes harm to someone else? Like I don't – it's yeah. illogical.
2: There's obviously, there's a lot of great and funny stuff in the book as well. Oliver, were there any bits that you wanted to discuss that we haven't brought up so far?
1: Um, I guess just from like a, a children's author's perspective, I really love the narrator style of, of, of Pratchett when it comes to his stories. And being the first one, I can, I can, I I like it. You know, it's, it's a very tongue in cheek. Like it reminds me of a current author now who's also British, A.F. Harold, who's also a poet as well. And he writes these kind of like, cheeky kind of narrator styles that, that play with words play play with the way the story flows uh, for example there, there's a scene at, at the very start where um so he's like you know tell you what tomorrow i'll show you and then the next line is it was tomorrow it's like there's no you know it's just <laughs> like it's it's just very clever in that sense of like you know it's it's playing with the the pacing of the story but doing it mm. in, in a way where kids can understand okay we'll get to the point here kind of thing so it it, it is kind of cool
0: I love that line too. Like I I was like, oh, that's so clever when I got there.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's glorious and playful
2: in a a really lovely way. Do we have any favorite bits that we want to read out?
0: I've got one, which is where they're talking about how they all supported each other with things and Wobbler's one was when he made them all listen to a Cliff Richard record backwards Uh, (laughs) and to hear what was being said and what Wobbler heard. And this is in a footnote. According to Wobbler, it was really, hey, kids, go to school and get a good education. Listen to your parents. It's cool to go to church, which is just so (laughs) delightful because that is what a Cliff Richard (laughs) backwards would say.
2: I really liked the bit where Johnny's having the conversation with himself about whether or not he should pursue this weird experience. Johnny hesitated. I could turn around now, he thought, and go home. And if I turn around, I'll never find out what happens next. I'll go away and I'll never know why it happened now and what would have happened next. I'll go away and grow up and get a job and get married and have children and become a granddad and retire and take up bowls and go into Sunshine Acres and watch daytime television until I die and I'll never know. And he thought, perhaps I did. Perhaps that all happened. And then just when I was dying, some kind of angel turned up and said, would you like a wish? And I said, yes, I'd like to know what would have happened if I hadn't run away. And the angel said, okay, you can go back. And here I am back again. I can't let myself
1: down. (laughs)
2: The world waited. I was like, I did not see that coming. and <laughs> you know, I was really into it. I love that little passage.
1: My favorite wobbler line is, this is a town where famous people don't come from. It's famous for it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They all have such a dim view of where they grow up. And I kind of understand that, like growing up in a, a country town, it is, you kind of feel that way. You're like, nothing ever happens here a lot of people leave and the people who stay stay for reasons that are not yes i will be famous and do something amazing it's like no i like it here it's quite nice so yeah it's i I totally identified with that
0: i just have one more um which i felt on a personal level as someone who is an editor as well as a writer um so the blackberry guardian had a front page story headed council slammed in cemetery sale rumpus the guardian often used words like slammed and rumpus you wondered how the editor talked at home i'm like how dare you (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh.
0: oh wow well
2: i I like that though there's a little detail in that that shows Pratchett was a journalist because he knows that the editors write the headlines and not the people who write the stories. so I thought that was that was nice, but that is funny.
0: Yeah, one of my jobs is like literally writing headlines every day, but they are how I talk. They are mostly puns, so that's <laughs> fine. I don't use words like rumpus unless there's a pun to be done in there.
2: <laughs> well, you're not writing a newspaper for a small country town yet. Early on, there's a bit where Johnny's getting freaked out by the dead when he brings his friends back. And there's just a really nice line. He was balancing on his fear and he felt oddly calm. The funny thing was when you were on top of your fear, you were a little bit taller. That's amazing. Like you so really find a new metaphor for something that's so commonly used in metaphors. And I just, yeah, I really love that.
1: I've got two one liners that could easily be on a t-shirt or a magnet, magnet um, or a bumper <laughs> sticker. One to use you it, you're dead at your age, it's over. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which is uh, pretty cute. And uh, this one here, I mean, you know, that's the trouble with life. It takes up your whole time. <laughs> and, you know, it's this concept of, like, the dead wanting to live and wanting to have a life. What I like about this book is that it gives you another meaning of what it is to be the afterlife, you know? Like, people think afterlife is, that's it, you're you're gone. Um, but, yeah, it, it's, it's kind of cute seeing this kind of, like, uh, dead people just imagining that, that there's still more to come. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's got a nice message in terms of that. Well, it doesn't usually treat death as something horrifying, which is often the case in books.
2: Mm. But that, and that's a real hallmark of Pratchett's work that he always mm. sees death in a very sympathetic light. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a really great book for that.
1: It was kind of clever in that judgment day. It's actually the person who's dead that actually makes that judgment to wanting to go. I thought that was kind yeah. of cute. Like, you know, all this time you think, you know, something's going to happen or the big man upstairs is going to judge you or whatever. But it's actually, oh, no, I, I'm, I think this is time for me to go now. I'll, I'll, I'll be judging that. So it's like, okay, cool. Yeah, I like the explanation of, the, of, of judgment day.
2: Yeah, yeah. that's great. I haven't thought about it like that, but that's cool. What I really want to highlight that I super enjoyed was when the dead were watching Nightmare on Elm Street, and they're making all the, oh, look, that's pretty. That's a nice name. Oh, that's a <laughs> nice jumper. And then they go, that's not very nice, which was very, very funny. And just lots of little moments like that. There was one that I thought was kind of pertinent in our current conversation around policing, which was where William Stickers walks through the policeman You know, you really shouldn't have done that, William, said the alderman, as Sergeant Comley hurried away. He's nothing but a symbol of the oppression of the proletariat, said William Stickers. You've got to have policemen, said Mrs. Liberty. Otherwise, people would simply do as they liked. Well, we can't have that, can we, said Mr. Vicente. (laughs) And I'm like, I know that's not about what we're talking about now, but I felt a moment of solidarity there. (laughs) I was like, yes, maybe we should let people do a bit more of what they like and what they think is
0: right. Well, the strong irony of Mrs. Liberty being the one that said that. Yes. <laughs> also the one, there's that interesting thing, like she was very strong in her views, but then she has this heir who is very much not like her. And also she is, yeah, it's just, she contains multitudes.
2: Yes, <laughs> she does. We should probably move on to questions from our listeners because we've got some great ones.
0: Okay, so so this one's from Bellvire Discord. Did you notice a progression in Pratchett's style between Only You Can Save Mankind and Johnny and the Dead?
2: It's an interesting question. I find them quite similar, but I find them both very Pratchetty. They do seem to maybe evolve with the way his style was evolving at this time, because this is sort of like that mid-progression of the Discworld where this is around the same time as Men at Arms, if I remember rightly. So it is kind of a bit of a transition from the early books into the mid-period where he really gets into a real stride with the Discworld stuff. They're written very close together, so I find them pretty
0: similar. I'd have to read the first one again in pretty close succession to this one to be able to compare them fairly. But reading this one, having had a break in between, I felt like I was immersed in the same world. So to me that means the writing style hadn't changed that much. Perhaps the main difference, if I had to try and pick a difference, perhaps the first one has more of a focus on characters over plot, whereas this one has a good balance between characters and plot Mm. because the other one has a more simple – like they both have simple plots to a degree, but there's a lot more going on. Perhaps under the surface of this one. Though in the first one, they still did have a lot of that really good, rapid background exposition that I talked about that touches on the darker stuff happening in his personal and family life. So Mm. I don't think they're that different. And for me to try and pick changes, I think would be looking for them deeply rather than them being on the surface.
2: Yeah, okay.
0: This one's from Shut Up Banks via Discord. Was anyone else annoyed that Kirsty didn't feature in this book? It's a very Johnny-centric book, which the title sort of gives away, but even as a supporting character, she was missed by me at any rate. I was. Yes, I missed her. I would have liked yeah. to see her, but maybe it will have been too many characters. But, I mean, just sideline wobbler a bit, but I guess you said you, we need him later, so.
2: Yeah, but I, I don't think you would have lost a lot by including her. There's potential stuff that could have happened. Maybe you just thought it was one character too many and she wasn't necessary, but at the same time, she was great. And it would have been nice to see how she evolves as a character and changes.
0: So this one's from Molokov via Discord. Do you think the era of this book, especially technology, dates it too much for the younger readers of today? I don't think it does, actually, because Pratchett doesn't really
1: use too many terms of like communication and and technology. There's not really much that's used except for radio and TV, which is still common to this day. But The saving grace of the whole story is the fact that it's set in a small town. So even if you're reading it today, kids will have an assumption that in a small town, I know it sounds bad, but in a small town, there's not access to the high-tech stuff or up-to-date stuff anyway. So, you know, there's this sense of like, oh, I guess it's a small town in the middle of nowhere. They could, they probably use like old-fashioned stuff. So yeah, I don't think it does that book at all.
0: And I think perhaps, like, if it does date the book, it's in a way, because they do literally date the book, but he says it's 1993 in the text, which is quite unusual for a story, I think. And enough time has passed that it has gone from contemporary to nostalgia. So Mm -hmm. kids today might read it and be like, oh, cool, that's what it was like in the 90s, rather than this is a bit weird and I don't understand it. So I think perhaps that leap has happened. Whereas if you read it perhaps in 2003, it might have seemed a bit old-fashioned.
2: In a similar way to when they brought back Doctor Who in 2005, they really leaned into making it feel like it was an early 21st century setting, like in terms of the fashion and a lot of the cultural references. And they didn't try and make it feel timeless because now when you watch it, you're like, oh, yeah, I remember this. This is like from 2005 because they knew whatever they did, it would date. Mm. So I think there's a bit of that going on
0: too. Mm. Um. So other questions? Steve Lay via Twitter asks, Terry and Neil Gaiman have written more than one set of books each on the same theme. Small gods and American gods are both examinations of how the power of belief creates and shapes gods, while Johnny and the Dead and The Graveyard Book examine the interaction between the living and the dead at a local cemetery, although The Graveyard Book is also a brilliant take on Kipling's Mowgli stories. What do you think draws both to examine similar themes? So I'm going to straight up confess that I haven't read American Gods or The Graveyard Book Um, American Gods is an extra crime by me because a friend of mine lent me the book three years ago um, and it's been sitting on my shelf, guiltily, pristine, as I protect it, moving (sighs) it place to place, not reading it. (laughs) Paul, I'm sorry. Um, You'll get it back, I promise.
2: Listeners, don't worry. The friend was not me.
0: Um, (laughs) (laughs) I've got your books too. They're on the same shelf. I keep all the books I've borrowed um, together so I know that they don't belong to me. They belong to my guilt.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, look, I similarly have a box that is literally labeled other people's stuff that I try to give back to them periodically. It doesn't always work out.
0: Did they lend it to you or?
2: Mostly, but sometimes they just left it in my house by mistake. I don't even know why. Yeah. Anyway, (laughs) I have read uh, both of those books, although it's been quite a while. But to address the question, I think they both had a lot of similar interests. I think it's one of the reasons why they were such great friends. I mean, if you look at, they both have written a very sympathetic version of death. They're both drawn to similar aspects of folklore. Gaiman really is fascinated by classical mythology and Norse mythology, and you see elements of that in the pantheon of the Discworld, in particularly Terry's earlier books they're both very interested in belief. They're both very interested in the other worlds that lie around us. And this is the closest that Pratchett comes to urban fantasy. That's the real answer. They're good buddies because they have a lot of similar interests and they write about the things that they think are cool and interesting.
0: This next one's from Sven via Discord. Um, Blackberry Cemetery or Pet Cemetery is last unresting place. Ooh, that's a good one.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that it's a hard choice, though.
0: Depends on what you're into. Like, do you want to have like a what terrifying we- time or like a chill time? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I want to. I want to, like, you know, be able to transport myself all over the world and go off into amazing journeys of the imagination. I don't want to come back and try and kill my friends and family. Spoiler alert: the Pet Cemetery.
0: <laughs> How do you know? It depends on why you're in the cemetery.
2: <laughs> oh, does it? Like, I, I have to admit, I don't. I'm not fully familiar with the story of Pet Cemetery.
0: But, I mean, it has to be Blackberry Cemetery, surely, because it just sounds so charming and there's TV and a canal and (laughs) other people's, like, other ghosts that are also pretty chill to be around, for at least for a while. It depends on when. Like, is it Blackberry Cemetery now when it's just you and Mr. Grimm? Ooh. Mm. Or Blackberry Cemetery in its prime?
2: Are they going to bury any more people there? I mean, it kind of sounds like it's full.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it's been full for a while. As well, because mm-hmm. like the most recent one they meet died in the fifties, I think. So like it was forty years earlier, and plus like less and less people are buried. Like cremations are a lot more common now. I mean, there could be modern burials there, but graveyards do get full, I guess. Yeah. It depends on the thing, because they, ha- they actually do touch on this in the book, where Mrs Liberty is like, I paid my five pounds or my five shillings and whatnot, and it didn't say I'm going to be dug up after 50 years or 80 years. But there are some cemeteries that do have that. Like when you buy your plot, it isn't in perpetuity. You do get dug up and someone else gets buried there. But I don't know what the laws are on early 1800s, 1900s graveyards, if there were contracts or if they hold up or whatnot. Yeah, I don't know about England's policies, like unless there's a law. That says you can do it, but I don't know if you can retroactively dig it up because there are ways to now lock up land by burying people there. Um, which is a thing wow. that environmental people are doing to, um, suggest environmental burials. Cause then if you bury someone, you plant a tree above them, then that has to stay a park. You can't develop that yeah. land. Oh. So yeah, it depends. Did not know that. That's so good. I'm now just going off on a tangent on my graveyard bullshit. Um, but yeah, I built <laughs> a lot of that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Blackberry Cemetery <laughs> is my answer to that one. <laughs>
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think I'd go BlackBerry.
0: I'm not really a pet
1: person, so I would definitely have to go BlackBerry as well, I think. Only because it'd be so cool <laughs> to hang out with uh, charming village folk. Yeah, it's it's kind of like having your own version of, of Google Box, actually, because now that they've got their own TV, I'll just watch TV with them and just have them do comments of like shows.
0: Yeah, and we'd all get to hang out because we've all chosen the same place. So, like, I feel like that's going to be great. Yeah,
2: I think it's a win for us. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Okay. Our final question is from Ian Nichols via Facebook. In the book, some of the dead go off on a flight of the imagination. Where would you go on such a journey?
2: I mean, it's kind of implied they can go anywhere. Look, I would travel back in time and see me some dinosaurs and then go in the future and see the future of the world. I think I would do time travel. I think that would be cool, particularly if I was dead, you know? I don't have to worry about ruining my own future. Yeah, I'd be bang up for that.
0: Are you watching or can you interact with people?
2: Oh, just watch. That's cool.
0: I mean, we saw how much
2: the dead in the book had fun without really needing to interact with the living very much <laughs> so i think i think i could do that particularly in the future i mean just looking at all the cool stuff and not needing to worry about how you fit into the future would be awesome
0: mm.
1: yeah i would like to go all matrix and just go into like computer codes and experience video games and just jump from world <laughs> to world it sounds like ready player one ish but yeah i'd love to do that for sure
0: Oh, we're gonna have this to get you cool. to read the first one of the series. Yeah, I think you'd like it.
1: It's definitely on my to-do list now, like, especially after you've told me that Kirsty is the video game player. So that sounds really cool. Yeah,
0: yeah. it's. I think yeah. you're really gonna like it. So if you read it, like, let us know what you think. Yeah, we come up with really cool ones, and I want to steal both of them, but I will not. I will go on my own part of imagination. I think I would just want the answers to everything. Every question I had that you could not find an answer to is um what i would want like that's always what i've thought i'd want from an ideal afterlife is if there's a person who was who died in mysterious circumstances and their death has been a mystery ever since like i'd want to know how that was i want to know what the deal was with the mary celeste like what went on um what was stonehenge for
2: that's cool you just solve all the unsolved mysteries oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah
0: like like um go go into loch ness and stand there for its entire history and see if there is a monster. Um, And if there is, is it a new kind or is it just like a plesiosaur that's just managed to keep on keeping on or is a time traveling plesiosaur that just comes (laughs) back and forth between its eras? Because that could be kind of cool. Like what if there's a time portal in Loch Ness and it's just a plesiosaur that comes in every so often. That's why it's not there when people look for it because it's gone back to its own time.
2: Oh, uh, I want to see a TV series of this. The ghost investigates.
0: <laughs> like, it would be so cool. <laughs> yeah, because there's just so many unanswered questions out there. And you know how Stonehenge, like, you're like, oh, well, that's just some big stones in a field. Those stones came from really far away, and they tried to recreate the journey, and they had to use modern technology in the end because it was impossible to do without. So, like, how did they get there? So, yeah, my flight of imagination would be just, I guess, um, mythbusters, but for, like, all of the things
2: uh, i think it would be called liz in the answer life <laughs> 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 and i want to see this tv show It'd be amazing
0: yeah because i just used to drive me like ridiculously mad as a child when i'd read like mysteries or the Unexplained. i'm like well in my lifetime they'll explain it but now that i'm older i realize they will not mm. i will not know how these like why these things. How did Tutankhamen's mother die? Like, is that mummy they found actually her? Sorry, I'm, I could do this for another three hours. So I will not just list all the things I want the answers to <laughs> unless someone has the answers, in which case, please contact us. It's been a
2: delight to talk about this book. I remembered the first one way better than the second two Johnny books. And I, I wasn't sure how I was going to feel about this one because I didn't remember it that well. But it's been so much fun to revisit. It's It's a really beautiful, lovely book. And thank you so much, Oliver, for joining us to talk about it.
1: Absolute pleasure. You know, it's been very fascinating just sort of unpacking Johnny's adventure and definitely I'll read those two, next two books in the Trinity for sure. So I'd
0: love to get your thoughts on them. And if people want to
2: find out more about you, Oliver, where can they find out more?
1: Yeah, so I'm an author of uh, 10 books and my next book is called Brain Freeze, which is a collection of short stories and that's coming out in September. Um, you can find more information at my website, which is simply oliverrider.com. Um, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Oliver Winfrey, if you like, where you get to see my nerdy collection of video games, sneakers, and burgers. Um, not that I, I, eat, the, I eat the sneakers, but, um, I sometimes I do actually. Yes, that's true. Um, also, um, if any, if any teachers out there who are really looking for a funny author to come visit their school or do a writing workshop, you can contact me at, uh,
0: Booked Out Speakers Agency. So yeah. I'm definitely going to be hitting up that Instagram. That sounds amazing. Yep.
1: Yeah.
2: If you were to recommend one of your books to someone who enjoyed Johnny and the Dead, which one would you recommend?
1: It would definitely be Con Nerd and Super Con Nerd. Uh, con Nerd is a kid who wants to be an artist and draws cartoons, but his mum wants him to study hard and become a doctor. So it's my love letter um, to being a nerd because I'm proud to be a nerd. And nerdy chats like this are fantastic. And this is something that, that I think, if Connor was a real-life character, he would definitely be tuned in to the um, the Pratchett all the time, I reckon. So, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's a big compliment. I can't
2: think of a better compliment than that. No, absolutely. Um, So thank you again for joining us, Oliver. Well, look, um, we'll be back, of course, next month, as we are every month. And it's been quite a journey for us. We've been through a few children's Pratchett books in the last few episodes. Next episode, we're going to do something a little bit different, Liz.
0: Yeah, something a bit scientific because it is National Science Week coming up. So we may have drawn the conclusion that we're going to be doing the science disc world or the beginning of it. Yes,
2: Yes, the first one in the series, which is going to be a lot of fun. We're going to be joined by professional science communicator, Anna Avenenum from the Australian Academy of Science. And we'd love to hear your questions. So get your questions into us. You can use the hashtag pratchat 35 And if you've got any questions or follow-up about this episode, you can use the hashtag Pratchat34, or you can get in touch with us directly via our website. And we'd just like to say a big thank you to everybody who listens to the podcast and who supports us, whether that's through a subscription or by just telling other people about the podcast or rating and reviewing us on your podcast platform of choice. All of those things really help us find more listeners. And really, that's the whole reason we do this, is to reach people who share a love of Terry Pratchett. And I'd just like to do a quick shout out. We don't normally do this. There are a lot of other Terry Pratchett podcasts out there now. We've started a bit of a trend, I think, Liz. There's only one who's older than us, which is Radio Moorpork, but there's been about five or six other ones start up, particularly in the last couple of years. So if you've enjoyed us, why not give them a listen? Hopefully you won't like them more than us and never come back. But I just feel like... All our enemies, like, (laughs) (laughs) just our nemesis. It's a big rivalry. (laughs) Um, But no, do do check them out. There's some lovely people doing commentary on Pratchett. And, you know, it's nice to hear a different take on the same books. Most of the other ones are just doing the Discord books, so you probably won't find them talking about Johnny and the Dead anytime soon. But they are a good listen, so um, do check those out if you get a chance. But thanks for listening to us, and until next time... May you go on many amazing flights of imagination. You've been listening to Pratchat, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast with Pratchat as Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Oliver Pomavan. Pratchett is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pratchett Podcast and listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via pratchatpodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat34. Pratchat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast, Splendid Chaps,
1: and time travel comedy series, Night Terrors. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.